Digital Gonzo, episode 158, recorded Sunday the 1st of December 2013, The Legend of Korra, book 2, Spirits. Before we begin today's show, here's what some people have said about my first novel, The Cartographer's Handbook, in Amazon reviews for the Kindle version. For those who haven't heard yet, this is a short introductory piece kicking off an ongoing series I'll be putting out periodically over the next few years. So really, you want to get in on the ground floor with this one. A promising prologue to a hopefully long-continuing series. You could feel the attention paid to make sure it was all accurate. Really sets the mood for immersion. A debut piece that shows real skill in world-building and offers a new take on a genre that's so often done by the numbers. Believable and engaging. Truly enthralling. After reading a few of the stories, I had to put it down and look at a wall for a bit to compose myself. Kick-started my imagination and made me think about all the possibilities and directions in which this story might go. Those were some excerpts from Honest, Balanced Reviews. And I'm proud to say you guys haven't been fawning all over me. And there's been some sharp and observant critiquing of the shortcomings of this book as well. And you can read all of them in more detail on the Kindle store. And from you guys in the Gonzo community, I need a lot more of those Amazon reviews if this work is going to reach new readers and listeners. I'm looking for 50 And since Amazon doesn't combine the reviews over various territories, that means 50 in the UK and 50 in the USA. And that by no means excludes people in territories outside of there. Review it in the Amazon store that you bought it from. The book is also coming to more outlets very soon. And coming Monday, December the 9th, the audio drama. Available in MP3 download directly from Gonzo Planet. This is the book brought to life and by far the best thing I've done. Next week's podcast will be a review and deconstruction with full plot spoilers for this first book, along with a roundtable chat with some of the performers. So, now you know what you'll be listening to all next week, here's what you got to do. From Monday onwards, go to Gonzo Planet. There's a snazzy new theme for the site which has been made more trim and accessible. That's this year's donations paying off for everyone. Go to the new Cartographer's Handbook page. There's a suggested donation price just for the audio drama. This book is entirely separate from the podcast. And it's exactly that, a suggestion. You pay what you feel this is worth to you. Before or after, I'm not going to chase anybody or demand payment. Donate, download and listen. Or download, listen and donate. Or just download and listen and tell your friends about it. The important thing is the listening. I've put years of work into writing this, and the audio has been months of planning and reading, chasing actors, advice, inspiration, direction, their hard work at performing, whether their piece made it in or not, editing, music arrangement, and organisation. All the time organisation. It's definitely the piece I'm proudest of. And I think it's worth everybody's time if you like my podcast. At its core, this story is for everyone who loves the same things I do. So now you know what, when, where and why. I'll be back in a week to talk all about the making of this thing. Be there for that. It's going to be fun. And now, without further ado, The Legend of Korra.
Welcome back, Avatar fans. After a year-long wait, we return to talk about the follow-up to last year's Legend of Korra, Book 1, Air. And the whole gang is here again. Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince. Hello there. Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Hello. Jerome McIntosh of Game Burst. Good day, sir. Dwayne Griffiths of Gonzo Planet. Hello. And myself, Alex Shaw of Digital Gonzo. And this one was rather a contentious series throughout, generating some rather impassioned love and indeed hate. Well, I'm going to start off first, which will hopefully lead to more of a conversation, with one question, which I'm fairly certain at least one of you can probably answer in quite some detail. What are the noticeable differences between Studio Pero and Studio Mir? Well, <laughs> I knew you'd start. <laughs> um, to be fair, I think Studio Puero oh, uh, uh, are not incompetent. Like they, they're good at what they do. I think just in comparison to Studio uh, Mir, they're they're just not as accomplished. Um, one thing that somebody pointed out to me was. Um, you can really tell the difference uh, between Mir uh, and the other studio is that in uh, Mir's uh, animations, characters actually use body language when they're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So they'll use their hands to express things and so forth and so on. With um, I, I don't know if I'm actually pronouncing this right. Is it Piero? 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 How's it spelled? P-I-E. Mm-hmm. Double R O T. Perot. Perot. Okay. Uh, for the folks at home, uh, Studio Perot uh, took over from Studio Mir, who did the animation for the entirety of season one. Is that correct? Yes, all of season one. And I believe, although they weren't called Studio Mir back then, mm. a lot of the people who make up that studio worked on the original series as well. Right, right. Um, uh, so, yeah, Studio Perro took over for episodes one through six, and they also did episode nine. And yeah. Studio Mir came back in for seven, eight, and then 10, 11, 12, 13, and yes. 14. And, um, yeah, um, there were a lot of complaints amongst fans. And um, it looks like book three isn't – it's completely Studio Mir next time, and so is book four. So um, they've listened to um, fan feedback. It is important to note that um, Studio Mir did actually point out that they got exhausted animating season one. That's why they were a little reticent to start on season two at the beginning. Um, And I totally understand that. But you look at... We're going to get on to beginnings part one and two later. But you look at the animation in those two episodes... And then you look at the animation in an episode called Peacekeepers. Mm. I don't know if anyone remembers that episode, but like yeah. that animation I felt was actually below book one of the original series Whoa. standards. Um, and Peacekeepers in- is the one where uh, they, they've just got back to Republic City. And, and they meet uh, General Iroh yeah. to try and... Yeah, and, and it's not like the detail in the character designs or anything. It's just the way they move and the way they interact with each other that's just a little bit awkward. It's not as fluid and and graceful as it is all the way through book one and the latter half of uh, book two. Um, 
it's yeah. not it's not all bad though. It's if, not if you bad. Remember, no, the original teasers that came out with Korra fighting uh, uh, one of the spirits. Yeah, you l- lost your. I did stuff, Mister Garrett. I was gonna I was gonna say like um, the a- action sequences in the first two episodes and. Uh, uh, like, cause they come back for episode nine as well. The sequences yeah. in that are really visually spectacular. I think it's consistency more than anything that's my problem. Studio Mir are consistently excellent. Um, whereas, uh, I just call I, them Pero. Pero. Um, yeah, th- th- there's just, there are some episodes where it feels like they're being lazy. I think yeah. as soon as you get into an action scene, Pero can like pull their weight along with Mir. Like I think yeah. I'm looking through their history of stuff they've done. I see lots of Naruto. I see lots of Bleach. I think these guys can animate a pretty cool looking action sequence when they want to. But yeah, as soon as you get into like Josh, you're totally right. As soon as you get into just a conversation or a scene of dialogue, there is a real lack of expressiveness in the animated performance, and it's a lot of very stiff characters kind of just standing there not moving much or if they are moving it doesn't seem to really be tied to any sort of uh anything that they're really saying that much and, and yeah. that's where uh mirror just really shines see the issue is studio para is very much used to help give give a break to the main studio in like all the projects that they work with that's why their catalog is so long but it's not consistent so they're so like they're the substitute teachers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Schneebly. Granted, Mir has the advantage of having most of the Spirit World episodes, which lends itself yeah. to some amazing imagery. So yeah. it, but, but even so, like, yeah, I think a lot of the, uh, when it comes to like the background art and the actual look, like there's a few characters that are maybe a little off model here and there, but it, for the most part, I think they, to the untrained eye, I think they're going to match pretty closely and it's not going to be mm. too noticeably different, but, there is definitely a difference, and Pero just uh, Pero just cannot quite match what Mir has been doing. Yeah, I, 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 I was gonna say like I'm such a huge Avatar fan that because of that love and that passion, I am going to be picking apart the series more than the casual viewer. And I totally get that for somebody who's uh, not as into this universe as me, that that's not really going to be a big issue for them, but it was really noticeable for me. But, you know, credit where credit's due. I, I think they did a good job in certain areas. For me, it was the um, the lack of flair that, yeah. that caused me to notice the difference. Mm. I mean, we've, we've been re-watching the first book uh, recently, and one of the things that I noticed was they'd have... Um, little snippets where the art style suddenly became very um, representative of, of a particular other style. Like there's the, the episodes with Tano particularly, um, they they very deliberately make certain scenes look extremely manga styled. Mm. Um, and then you've got uh, little bits that will crop up here and there that uh, seem very Miyazaki inspired. And when it's not mere doing it the absence of those little personal touches just seemed uh very 
um, very noticeable to me. And it, it, the, if they are, um, if, if Perot are a studio that have sort of come in to, to take over for a bit, then that would make perfect sense because they're going to stick very much to the templates that they've been given because it's not their place to go outside of that template. Yeah. I, th- I think the, enough... Go sorry, on, Jerome. I've talked way too much. Go on. See, the issue is I'm sort of playing devil because by their very definition, they have to try and stay a bit loose because they have to, one of their talents, the reason why they're constantly called in is because they have to adapt to whatever style of the animation they're substituting in. So they can't completely mimic it, but Mm. they get close enough that it's only like us who are really paying attention that make, that seem to notice the difference, if you understand. Uh, so they're a bit jack of all trades, but that does mean that they can come in and do pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think another thing I noticed was that Studio Mir's um, animation always seems to be really in sync with Track Team's soundtrack. Mm, yes. Um, a, like, I think back to book one, and there's a sequence towards the end of episode six, an action sequence, where it felt like the animation was choreographed to the music like a dance number. Yeah. Like, every, like, motion was in sync. Whereas with... Uh, Is that the one where uh, Cora ends up fighting with an equalist in the street and the camera pans around them? That's not the one I was thinking of, but that's a great example. Okay, um, I was thinking of the one where they go up on the glass roof and Lim Bei Fong is fighting with her. Uh, yes, no, that's, yeah, absolutely brilliant. Um, whereas Perot, uh, it does feel like the music's just there in the background and the music's great, mm. but it's kind of not, it's there just as a mesh. bed. Yeah, it's there as a bed rather than being completely in sync with the action like it is with Mir's work. So what's, I mean, I just assumed that they made the music afterwards, but uh, so, so what's the actual order of these? can vary. There was probably mm. some scratch audio in there to begin with, and if right. it was and if it was very important to them that it what is happening on screen matches some sort of audio thing, they might have gone ahead and kind of established a basic rhythm and then track team would flesh it out later. Wow. Or it could have just been completely lucky chance, or it could have been something that track team actually saw what Mir did in a lot of those circumstances and found that they could really mess things together very nicely, that it yeah. like matched a nice rhythm to begin with. It's kind of hard to tell without actually being behind the scenes. Yeah. Speaking of animation, and somebody already mentioned this, what hallmarks of Studio Ghibli, specifically Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, were apparent in this season? Well, the, the spirits are so, are so Miyazaki. Yeah. Um, but in a good way. Like it, they weren't like uh, copy and paste jobs. It was mm. clearly uh, they were clearly taking inspiration, but adding their own avatar spin to all of them. Mm. Um, and they really fit into the universe that's already been established as well. Um, and I love seeing that stuff. I, and yeah. you know, everyone knows that I'm Miyazaki. I worship the the ground Miyazaki walks on. <laughs> so it, it was great seeing kind of those ideas being integrated with another great piece of work that I really love. Um, yeah. Um, I'm yep. trying to think of other, like the, the dynamic between uh, man and nature was uh, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Just like trying to keep balance rather than one being dominant and the other one being dominant. This idea of we can work together in sync yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be one way or the other. 
I think there's there's always been a little bit of a, a ghibli recognizable thread running through um the avatar series mm. and as you say Josh that idea of nature and and the and spirits and man being in balance and and all that kind of thing that although it is a western animation that takes it away a little bit from what I think it's, it tends to be uh, the uh, more mainstream Western animation, which is, um, here's a big thing, go and fight it. Once it's dead, we'll move on to the next episode and take on the next big oh. thing. Um, and and I that feeling of creating a larger universe yeah. has always been, um, been there and has always been one of the reasons why I adore this series as much as I do. Um, but I think the, the bit that really hit me was, um, in, I think it's, I'm sure it's part one of beginnings. Um, but it's the, um, the bathhouse. Uh, yeah, the, the bathhouse at the, um, the oasis. The, that's the uh, word I was looking for. Spirited away. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. They've even, they've even got, got ghost face. Yeah, and he he dresses the 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 moss and the mask and everything. He just yeah. he looks so much like one of those spirits. It's and and there's the uh, the frogs as well. The two the two headed frog beast in the um, spirit world. And and also when when Juan is on his cat deer riding through the wilderness, it's, it's just a well yes. princess <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this Appa has always been cat bus a bit. Yeah, mm. yeah. I I love the fact that they've I know we've talked about it, but I love the fact that they've taken the Eastern idea of spirits where it's very because I quite I'm quite into Japanese folklore and one of the things that you constantly see is that even though we're not completely separate from the spirit world, we manage to either we're completely ignorant to it and it serves our purpose or we interact with it and we learn to find a way to coexist. And I love the fact that that's what I'm, I might be jumping here, but I love the fact that that's where they ended this series with. Mm-hmm. The idea of the coexistence. Yeah. Well, the, the, the whole thing about the neutrality of spirits as well, the idea yeah. that no just like there. humans, there are not, inherently there is nothing inherently good or inherently bad about being a spirit it's the um you know the energy that washes over them can sometimes cause them to go in a direction that they don't necessarily want to go um, but ultimately they can be either well i just really like the idea of um like negative and positive emotions because the thing yeah. that allows in in beginnings uh, i think it's part two the thing that allows vatu to take control of a large group of spirits is their anger not like oh we're going to be evil it was just their emotional state uh, toward and their emotions towards a certain group of people um and the idea of evil not being like oh let's destroy the world oh um, let's kill everyone. Just like the evil within ourselves, like these emotional dark sides that we all have that can just take over us. And, and we regret it later, but like the idea of that was really interesting to me. Yeah, the fact that he's just catching them at this weak moment and putting his influence over us is, over them is exactly what happens to human beings in a high state situation. Hmm. Well, they use that idea of um, extreme emotions being uh, being able to be directed into 
causing harm, even if those emotions would seem to be initially positive. So if, if say, for example, you're very strongly moved in defense of somebody who is, is weak and is being threatened and you want to protect them, that strong feeling can very easily be tweaked into mm. you causing harm to someone else. And if you look at what the, um, the airbenders have always been angled towards, and I, that was something that they, they went into, uh, in more depth in, um, in the search. Or no, it was the end of the promise, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the when they have when they have the battle there. Yeah. Um, the idea that the what the airbenders have always been about is not necessarily total good, but about control of those emotions. And when you see uh, when one finds the uh, the first airbending tribe, or the the uh, the people who live on the um, the turtle who gives them the the lion turtle that gives them the air element that's the atmosphere that they seem to have cultivate cultivated it's one of not necessarily inherent good but peace and calm and tranquility and no extremes of emotion i i think that's the message i i really like from this series is that emotion isn't bad it's emotion without you know a leash it, it's you have to be in control you're allowed to feel you're allowed to feel these things but don't let your feelings control you um focus them and direct them towards constructive things uh, yeah um, which again i mean you compare that to a lot of um sort of very simplistic western kids yeah. tv and and it's very much about you know big loud shouty crash bang mm which is almost the entire opposite of that. Listening to all of the commentaries back-to-back of uh, Season 1 the other day, and uh, Mike and Brian heavily implied that certain other networks weren't happy with the idea of um, them introducing change... Uh, throughout their uh, series, they wanted everything to go back to the way it was at the end of every episode, which is a very 80s sensibility. And um, I applaud them for the uh, the finale where they're like, right, everything's changed now, nothing's going to be the same, the next season is called Change. Yeah. I, I mean, I really applauded them earlier than that when they... Because I don't know if you heard that Nick really wanted Cora to be a male. Yeah, uh, they, yeah, they yeah. Uh, screen tested it with um, a bunch of kids, and they were like, like leading the boys and saying, "Right, okay." Did you have a problem with her? Who? Cora. No, she was kick-ass. So it didn't bother you. What? That she was a girl. No, she kicked ass. <laughs> it was the, <laughs> literally their marketing tells them. That boys don't like watching girls in action. And considering see, the, uh... a, it's a really big thing in um, in literature as well. I was reading an article about this the other day. That it, if you look at the uh, the protagonists in kids' books, mm. the when when there's one core protagonist, it's something like three quarters 
more likely to be a male, mm. even if the book is very obviously directed at both boys and girls, because girls seem all that this is. Well, again, I'm, I'm guessing, in fact, that this is simply something that marketing thinks, which doesn't actually bear out when when you put it into practice. But yeah. they appear to be of the opinion that girls can more easily put themselves in the shoes of a male protagonist than boys can put themselves in the shoes of a female protagonist. But like, and I would tell those people that's only because <laughs> women just have to put up with that. I, yeah, I we think, just have more practice. At it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, exactly it. Like you've, you've grown up in a society where that's expected. So of course it's easier for you. But if you actually challenged what's been established and do something different, you might find that people like it more. I've, I think I, I always find uh, focus grouping really flawed. I, I mean, it's useful for some things. I think in games for like getting rid of bugs and stuff like that, focus group, uh, focus groups are useful. But when you're talking about artistic intent, I do find that people actually don't know what they want like i don't know what i'm gonna love next week i want to be surprised i want to be um you know i want to be shown something different it's kind of why i like cora so much um even though i i, I still prefer the original series but i'm glad that cora has gone in this different direction like if it was just the original series again with a different group of characters i don't think i would like cora as much as i do but they actually dared to you know <laughs> <laughs> go against what um what focus grouping would tell them would be the wise choice to make but yeah, yeah anyway absolutely. i agree completely. i think they did they went the right way about it like obviously through the season you do see a lot of things that do mirror but they're nice little quips towards that there are little moments where they remind you of certain things that happened in the original series but, the, but they're, they're fun they're fun little things yeah. of for people who are fans, but don't affect it for people who haven't seen the original exactly. series. Exactly. They're nice like, reminders. When, uh, who's that? I've forgotten his name. When Jason Isaacs, uh, turns up. Uh, in Emerald Zhao. Emerald Zhao. Like, for somebody who's yeah. never seen the original series, uh, that's just an example of how the fog affects people's minds yeah. but for fans it's like oh my god hello um, I haven't seen you in a while <laughs> that is a good um, that's of, the exact of, reaction uh, <laughs> if you yeah, don't get it it doesn't matter because it's proof of concept of what's going on yeah, yeah. good point um, I, I mean like General Zhao isn't like I think he's Admiral the don't demote him oh sorry Was oh yeah he's <laughs> yeah, yeah, naval Admiral Zhao uh, wasn't one of my favourite characters in the original series. In fact, Better I think he's in the, the... Uh, TV show that he was in the fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, but we do I, that that I found several scrolls. <laughs> but I think it speaks volumes about um, how much I cared about like the, the larger universe. That even though he's not one of my favourite characters. It was just really nice that the creators remembered him. Yeah. Like, they're not they're not making it up as they go along. I, I like that they they are paying attention to previously established fiction uh, and making reference to that stuff. And and not just in you know fan servicey ways. They really usefully expand on stuff they've established before during this se this season, especially they do. It's really great. I, we're going to go on to beginnings at some point, but yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
Okay, so let's go by characters then. Um, I'm going to do them in groups because a lot of them tend to uh, turn up in pairs uh, and affect one existing character together. Uh, so uh, start off straight away with Kaya and Boomy. Uh, Boomy we saw slightly thinner at the uh, end of the first uh, season just as a sort of a taster. Uh, and here we finally get to see Tenzin's extended family. And um, uh, so let me, let me think of the best leading question. Rather than what did you think of these guys, how did they serve the plot and characterization of book two? One thing um, that I I did really like that involved them, um, and it's it's quite a small thing, but there's a sense of echo through book two. Something will happen, and then further down the line, something very similar will happen, but it it takes a slightly different path, mm. and um, there's a. a, a part uh, towards the beginning um, where they're off on holiday and Iki goes missing. Yes. And the three of them, Tenzin, Kaya and Boomy, go off to find her. And you get uh, it's, it, a lot of it is character development. You've got the sort of sibling bickering between them and, and you get uh, examples where they, they demonstrate that Tenzin and Kaya have bending abilities and Boomy doesn't and they talk about that and how that impacts on them. Um, and then um, later on when Janora is lost in the spirit world, again the three of them go off to find her and you get a similar dynamic but there's there's more tension because obviously at this point there's more at stake um, <clears throat> but you still get these little resonant echoes of their relationship and how that in essence doesn't change the scenario that they're in the dynamic between them will always be very similar and you get an almost exact repeat of the scene at the waterfall where they use where Tenzin and Kaya use their bending to get up or down I can't remember which way they're going down um, down and then and they're kind of there's this moment of of them feeling pity for Boomy because he doesn't have bending and then just as they're going into this or about to go into the spirit world to look for Janora they say something about um, you know I, I don't know how um, Corrin and is going to manage in the spirit world because she doesn't even have her bending and then they both kind of look at Boomy and with this expression that goes oh sorry forgot you don't have bending and just that the idea that after everything that they've been through and these are quite you know they are getting on in years their dynamic as as brothers and sister hasn't changed no matter what they come up against and it gives you this wonderful sense of permanence about this family that no matter what happens that dynamic and the way they interact with each other will always in essence be the same i, I think a lot more, sorry go on dan they bring a lot more out of tenzin's character as well like we in the whole first book we got to know him kind of as the but stiff kind of like uptight son of Aang who is who is the, the pretty good mentor figure for Korra. Except but now we get to see... Don't bring my mother more, into this! Yeah, yeah. But now we get to see a lot more of his insecurities and kind of like what he's kind of like struggling with on his own. We, we're getting to... <laughs> just putting him next to siblings who are going to be ribbing him constantly. Mm. We get to get... We get the idea of their family dynamic. We learn, So we kind of learn a bit more about Aang as well and can kind of start making some guesses about how like how Aang was for the remainder of his years just as a parent like I can which totally makes sense like that Kaya and Bumi felt kind of neglected by Aang because Tenzin was the airbender and of course like Aang would be not only spending a lot of time trying to like establish this like well-rounded peaceful like society in Republic City but 
also would be putting a lot of extra focus and attention on Tenzin because Tenzin is the airbender. Tenzin is who's going to keep the airbending people alive and around and in this world. And so, of course, Bumi and Kaya are probably going to feel like feel neglected at a certain point and feel like they're getting a lot less attention. And of course, Tenzin is going to suddenly feel like he has a ton of weight on his shoulders and a ton of pressure to perform and live as the as Aang's legacy. And getting to see all of that and get to see so much more depth to him this season was really nice. And I'm really glad they didn't shy away from portraying Aang as not the best dad in the world. Because it would have been so easy for them to say, oh, no, Aang's perfect. He's the best dad ever. But they, you know, they it's added... It's more... all exactly the same. Yeah. Which, of course, but, um, which, you know, is never true of any parent. Like, as hard as you try, you make mistakes. Um like, you know, I, I have a positive relation with my uh, relationship with my parents, but it's not, like I'm not going to sit here and pretend that there haven't been moments where I've been pissed off with them or, uh, you know, I felt like I've been hard done by. That's not possible. It's not, the perfect parents don't exist. So I'm glad that they instead decided to add layers to Aang as a character. He's dead, but we're still learning more about him. Like, we're still getting to know him better. And they they don't paint him as a bad father. They just paint him as somebody who had to prioritize certain things in his life. I mean, he's the Avatar. He's going to be busy doing lots of other Avatar stuff. So it makes sense that Katara was... uh, the main figure in these children's lives. Yeah. If you notice, um, Boomy is the actually the oldest, but he acts like the youngest. Tenzin yeah. is the youngest and acts like the oldest because he has the most responsibility heaped on him and he is uh, slightly pompous in his uh, overabundance of responsibility. Kai is the most balanced out yeah. of all of them. But she's uh, also very much a middle child. Yeah. Kind of charming that they've sort of echoed the... Aang, Katara, Sokka dynamic. I was just the three about ones. to say, I didn't realize until the last um, uh, couple of episodes when they, when they were looking for Jinora, uh, uh, when they were lost in the fog, their bickering suddenly reminded me of Team Aang. Yeah, and, and even just immediately before that, I think is when I noticed it, when they're sitting there trying to figure out how to find Jinora, and one yeah. of them was like, I'll use my tracking abilities. We're in the spirit world. It won't work. I'll use my spiritual abilities. There's I'll spiritual energy boomerang. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's exactly a Sokka sort of thing to say. Yeah. It's like, they're, they're different characters, obviously, so it's not exactly the same, but there is something about that dynamic where I expect they saw Aang, Katara, and Sokka around each other a lot, and I expect yeah. some of that kind of influenced their relationship with each other. It's it's one, lovely the idea of that being brought forward. One of the moments that I really enjoyed was when Tenzin starts talking about the times he spent with Ang and he's convinced himself that they spent it as a family and he's sort of being the youngest and mm. being having such a what he perceives as a great time with his father, he just sort of added the rest of the family in to make it a good family moment. When actual fact it was one of the major points of contention between the three siblings. I think Tenzin has a lot of, I'm oh no, sorry, I know this is going slightly away from the, the Kaya and Bumi thing, um, but he has a lot of uh, a sense of how he should be about him. Yeah. Mm, um, yeah. There's so much repressed perfectionism Mm. within him and i think that's why um he gets so upset when it turns out that he can't actually get into the spirit world yeah 
it came through when he was trying to force uh, Milo's hand on the training of the um, the Lima monkeys. That he was, it, it was just sort of, you know, you must be like this. This is the only way you can be a teacher. And the end result, you know, super amounts of discipline, but a very cold child. And also, um, that reflects in the way that he's been trying to train Korra as well. And, and that, that, you know, this is the only way that you can be an avatar, is how he remembers Aang being. Um, and it's the moment when he basically says to her, you are the avatar, I trust you. Yeah. Yeah. Is huge for him as well as for her, I think. Aang was far better rounded as an individual because of the balance of people that he surrounded himself with. Yeah. I think Tenzin felt a lot of this tension, a lot of this uh, responsibility alone, it feels like, for a lot of his life. Like he's looked a lot to books and text. He seemed very much like a book learning kind of person. Mm. But uh, he. Like, I was thinking, um, uh, we're gonna get more to, like, uh, when Iroh makes his reappearance again later, but it made me, when Iroh was, uh, had that little brief exchange with Korra, it kind of made me realize that Korra is a lot like Zuko a lot of the time. She's yeah. very, uh, they're both really short tempered. They both feel like they have something to prove. They both put a lot of, like, weight in their identity and self-worth and their inherited titles, and they both desperately need the guidance of some wise mentor. So, like, Iroh's the perfect sort of person for, that, like, Korra really needs an Iroh in her life, and Tenzin is trying to be, but I don't think he's he hasn't had, like, Iroh is very much rounded in the same way that Aang is, and I don't think Tenzin is quite that way yet, and so he's been trying to be the Iroh in Korra's life, but he's just not completely equipped to be that yet. Mm. I'm really glad you made that comparison because I, I never thought of it that way. But now that you've said it, yeah, Cora is a lot like Zuko in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that would um, add weight to the her bending style. Although she is originally a waterbender, all of her bending is very aggressive and very forceful in kind of almost a fire bending approach no matter which element she's using exactly even like i have mastered air bending look punch 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 look (laughs) 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 she uh she air bends and water bends like a fire bender and an earth bender in both touches it's a sort of uh, combination of the incredible straight punches of earth bending and uh, and sort of the lashing out of fire bending she doesn't do we've seen a lot of water bending in this uh, season water benders they sort of they keep the water moving they flow their arms around and around specifically unalok does a lot of that Cora very rarely does any kind of uneconomical movements in terms of water bending she's always just forceful like one quick wrist flick and then she chucks the water across there's no fluidity to it and it's fluid you look at the um, the physical structure of the a lot of the waterbenders as well. Not all of them, because they they have different you know heights and, and body shapes and body types. But if you look at Cora, partly because of of how she's built, which I ah oh, I love. I can't remember whether I talked to you about did. this one. I just listened to it the other day. <laughs> but I I just I love the way they draw her. Mm. You know, 
stick thin petite women ah sod that no she's built like tree trunks and good but not literally the, the small she, elephant not, from not, not the little elephant from Avengers <laughs> no that would be weird who wants um, some I'd, I'd like to see her water bending that would be quite amusing um, but no the, the way that she dresses as well she wears um, even when they're, they're around Republic City where she doesn't really need the extra warmth mm. she tends to wear what looks like if she had it all zipped up and, and closed up would be a very heavy um, uh, South Pole style outfit but then she kind of peels the parker off so she's got the, the vest top up top and it gives her more anchor points it, it makes her look stronger and her and her um, her base and the way she holds herself is as you say very there's a lot of earth in there too Okay, it's that time again. Let's hear some of your points of view from the forum, specifically on the first few episodes of this series. Fell to Earth says... Okay, just a theory, but at some point in the series, the fact the Northern Water Tribe believes in arranged marriage will cause problems for our heroine. And as it turned out, kind of yes. Uh, that's uh, well predicted, although actually it wasn't Cora who fell into this, it was Bolin. More on that when we uh, talk I, about Desna and Eska. I, I don't really think you can call that arranged. She arranged it herself. Threatening. <laughs> they, they, they believe in, let's face it, in forced marriage. So I suppose that's how she's able to actually exert that. Wait, as a slave or a boyfriend? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Darth Wingo says... I thought her uncle seemed a little off, but I didn't see him going all Fire Lord Ozai on the South Tribe. Molomar says This is a bit of a rant but going from site to site I've realised something about a large part of the Avatar fanbase that annoys the shit out of me That is, if a character doesn't act fucking perfectly the fanbase will turn on them and suddenly all you will see is just blind hatred for the character This happened with Marco during Season 1 It's happening to Korra in Season 2 I mean really, can't people have some damn empathy and question well why are they acting like this instead of just throwing them into the volcano? Right now, everyone has turned on Cora, and it's mostly because of the way she's acting and how she treated her father and Tenzin. Anybody? I mean, um. I, I was talking about this as the episodes were airing. I was saying, I was basically saying at the time, as long as it informs the narrative that they're going for, and it seems deliberate on their part, I have nothing wrong, I, I have nothing against characters doing horrible things that they shouldn't be doing. Like, I, I think a lot of what Cora does in the early part of the season makes sense for her character. Um, Definitely. But, um, and I, I felt like they were deliberately trying to get you off of Cora's side. Like, it seemed very much like they were trying to get you on side with Marco uh, at the beginning of this season. Um, and then later on, Cora kind of learns some lessons and evolves as a person and takes that on to the second half of the season. And, but I, I don't think a lot of people saw that and um, weren't willing to wait for the resolution of certain story arcs before uh, making judgments. But oh well. Loud public judgments. Yeah. Condemnation, <laughs> some might say. Um, a lot of people say... do seem. Sorry, go, go first. Oh, go on. I do think a lot of people jump the gun a bit when it comes to judging characters based on a 
a poor decision or some action they take that is meant to fit in a larger and like a in the larger story. I do also think though that probably one of the biggest failings of this season and probably the Korra series as a whole is that I don't think they've managed to completely build audience empathy for her character. Like I don't like to a certain extent, yeah, the audience has to like meet halfway with that, but I don't think the show has quite achieved it yet. I, especially for this first, the first half of the season, a lot of the, a lot of it feels like watching an idiot teenager in a horror movie and where you're just saying, well, don't do that. No, you're going like, that's a stupid thing to do. No, don't, the spirits do are going to enter our world. Yeah. It's, it's just, it feels like watching someone just make dumb decision after dumb decision. And it's very hard to, you can kind of see where it's coming from, but yeah. like there were plenty of times when Aang would make a dumb decision, but you completely understood why you completely sympathized. And then he would usually like see later that he'd made a dumb decision and learn from it. And you, but with Korra, it feels like the few times she actually does do the right thing. It's because someone else steered her punches in the right direction. Mm. So see. it doesn't, it still doesn't feel like it's coming from her. And I, I just feel like that's, I feel like we're halfway through the Korra series now, and I still don't think they've managed to really win the audience over completely with her. I still really like her as a character, and I still think they can do it. I still think there's plenty of room to do it, but she and the whole new team avatar, I don't think are quite, have quite won people over yet, and I think that's a bit on them. Oh, one a- Go on, Sharon. I was just going to say, there's a bit too much um, decision-making and plot-moving based around uh, relationships or or potential romantic relationships. I believe and it's called in the I'm, industry shipping. Well, I, I just, I really, really hope that the reason that there's so much of it in this is because of their ages and not because the central character is a girl and they thought, well, how do we develop a girl's character? Oh, I know. Let's have her conflicted over who she wants to kiss. Um there was a there was a tiny tiny bit of that in the in the um legend of ang and it was kind of right at the end and if there were any little seeds of it earlier on it was almost like you could see them being dropped but it was like wait because that's got to develop that will turn up later whereas with cora it's been almost a consistent thread and it's not just her this is what makes me think it's more to do with the age of the characters because it it crops up with most of them yeah. they they get they're yeah. dealing with l- literal life and death stuff world crushing spirit dominating um business mauling uh tr- tragedy and disaster on a daily business basis mauling. and well i was thinking of asami there the fact yeah, that she no, gets course. you know her whole livelihood I just wouldn't want my, my business mauled by most of these spirits <laughs> well indeed and and so often the tension in in a, any given you know a given scene or a given episode comes down to Oh no, Marco will see us kiss. Ah. <laughs> um, Why? <laughs> just to move on to another character, um, I think the worst offender of um, character inconsistency in this season is uh, Lin Bei Fong. Mm. Um, mm. In season one, they set her up to not only be a hard ass, uh, a, a hard ass. Hard ass. But, a hard ass. She could be but, a hard ass if you want to. <laughs> but, um, but they also set her up to be savvy and smart and resourceful. Um, there is 
absolutely no way that the Lin, Lin Beifong we saw in book one wouldn't agree with what Marco brought to the table, yeah. the evidence that he brought to her. Um, she would recognize that there was a something going on there that she, she would recognize that Varric was involved in some way. It makes sense. She's super a, suspicious as a person. Yeah. It, and it's part of, I mean, that's why she's such a good, uh, po- uh, police officer yeah. is because she's so inquisitive and suspicious. Shrewd. It Especially makes... after everything that happened in the first season. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, she, you'd think she'd be suspicious of uh, people in power. And it makes sense for Asami and Bolin to not want to believe that Varric is this horrible person because they're both personally invested mm. uh, in him being a good person. Asami owes her company to him. Uh, Bolin owes his career to him. Lynn doesn't owe him anything, and she's not the kind of person, um, at least the character we saw in book one, who would care about that stuff anyway. Mm. So I was really disappointed that she was kind of wasted in this season. She's very underused generally to the point where she she spoke in in an episode that we rewatched today, and I actually questioned whether it was actually the same actress yeah it was Mindy Sterling yeah but the the voice sounded a little off she was a sad tigger about free tigger yeah have they just replaced her and that's why she's hardly been in it but they they really did underuse her and she's such a great character somebody astutely compared her to the depiction of Han Solo in Return of the Jedi yeah absolutely yeah and uh, the thing is I love Lin Beifong. She was possibly my favourite character apart from Amon in book one. And I really hope they don't make this mistake a second time with book three because they have a great character there Mm. and I don't want to see her wasted. I mean, I I am more invested Uh. in Lin Beifong than I am with uh, Bolin or Mako. So, like, I would rather they concentrate on her than those two, to be honest. It sounds like uh, you'll probably get your wish then, Josh. From uh, what's been confirmed, apparently it's going to be very heavy. Yeah, apparently it's been confirmed that she's going to be feature heavy in it along with the police and things like that. But there's also a rumour that the Emperor of the Earth Kingdom may be female as well. And I know it's not going to happen, but I'd love to think it was tough. Oh have they have they not confirmed that she's dead there? No, they haven't actually confirmed that she's dead. Yeah. So we may find out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she'd be she would be pretty old, but Katara's still alive, and yeah. Zuko's still younger alive. Than her. Z- yes. From the sounds of what uh, in the uh, end of the season, first season, uh, General Iroh refers to his grandfather in the present tense, which implies Zuko's still alive, and his daughter is the Fire Lord. It'd because be the sounds of it, he stepped dies, Ang. Yeah. And uh, well, I think Sokka is... Sokka's definitely been this. confirmed as dead, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I believe Appa is probably gone now as well. And Momo, or we haven't seen them. It would make sense, actually, if they focus on Earth next time, because technically, even though this one was called Spirits, it really rotated back round to water. Yeah. So, yeah, it would be Earth and then Fire again. Lucas the Yeti said... This fan reaction is precisely why I avoid most internet forums. The internet hates for the sake of hating. I actually like Cora more after watching the first two episodes of Book 2. 
without going into spoilers, I would have made the same choice she did. I'm looking forward to see what happens throughout the rest of the season. So far, everything has been a surprise to me. I hope to keep it that way. Yeah. Well, it's nice that Lucas the Yeti comes on our internet forum to tell us that this is why he avoids most internet forums, implying that Gonzo is a bit more conversational, less condemning. I would like to, seeing as we're on this uh, subject, I would like to say well done, uh, Gonzo Planet Forum, because even though there were a variety of different opinions, everyone was really civil when talking about this series. So uh, way to lead by example, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think actually we've got coming up here one of the most... um uh, I don't want to say conversely, conversely differing opinions to the rest of the uh, forum. I'm going to give it to you, uh, Josh, to read because I know that you uh, disagree with pretty much every word of it. So it's it's an exercise in being able to read without putting too much of yourself in, kind of like okay. uh, Lou Rodriguez. So uh, Jake says, People have already compared The Legend of Aang to the Star Wars original trilogy in so many ways. So I'm just going to explain why I'm complaining about Cora to the people. Sorry, uh, no, why I'm comparing. Sorry, I I added letters. Uh, <laughs> Freud. Freud. <laughs> this is this is important. You must maintain perspective. Sorry, no, that was I, I swear to God I'm that sure was an accident. I believe you. I'll start from someone. No, 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 no. Just so I'm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to explain why I'm comparing Korra to the prequels. So I'm just going to explain why I'm comparing Korra to the prequels. Book one was a general waste of time. It is unfocused, poorly written, has irritating, boring lead characters, and not much actually happens. There is also a great focus on political issues that never seem to feel as important as the show wants them to be. Is there a B missing there? Uh, um, the show wants them to. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. There is also a great focus on political issues that never seem to feel as important as the show wants them to. Because, oh, look, pro-bending. The follow-up, the follow-up series came years after the original series, was made and became extremely popular, so the creators decided to take it upon themselves to write the story, whether or not they had the skill to handle the story they wanted to tell. Very little is added to the world in lieu of going out of the way to make callbacks and references to the original series to please fans. Now that book two is starting, book one feels completely unnecessary because nothing carried over except Cora and Mako's, Mako's relationship, which was a misguided idea to begin with. All character growth has disappeared in order to force Cora to come into conflict with her dad and Tenzin just like episodes one and two were separated by ten years with only the barest connections. Book two tries to fix the complaints of book one's uneventfulness by packing in as much plot as possible, but it can't figure out what the core of the story is. Is it Cora's spiritual training? Is it the conflict between northern and southern water tribes? Is it Cora's family conflicts? What about her relationships with her friends? There is too much going on and it's hard to know what the fo- <clears throat> There is too much going on and it's hard to know what to focus on. The Legend of Korra, like the prequels, makes liberal use of the tell-don't-show approach to storytelling, a.k.a. the wrong way to do it. 
And finally, the prequel's biggest mistake that Legend of Korra seems to be mirroring... Oh, for God's sake. Sorry. And finally... And finally, the prequel's biggest mistake that Legend of Korra seems to be mirroring... It is taking itself way too seriously and isn't fun anymore. I'll keep watching Korra, but this series doesn't seem to be trying to tell a cool story. Only please a set of fans that love the original series. In fact, the shift, in fact, the shift to a more adult tone, uh, tone, kid, kid of course. That, that it's mentioned. kind. Yeah. In fact, the shift to a more adult tone kind of proves that because the youngest fans of the original series when it was airing will probably be young teenagers now, and Cora doesn't seem to be trying to even reach out to anyone younger than 12 or so. They are rejecting the child demographic that the legend of Aang succeeded so well in telling its story to. Now, I'm not saying that everything... that. Okay, I can say at least that I disagree with absolutely everything, same as you, Josh. Um, I, I will say that uh, whether or not they appeal to most children, that Lyra adores The Legend of Korra mm. at, at all of age five. I think she doesn't really get the uh, importance of the teenage relationshipy side of things. In fact, she tends to turn her face away from the screen when people are kissing, but she uh, adores the characters, and she finds it one of the most fun TV shows ever. She she was saying the funny lines and everything to do with um, uh, Bolin and Pabu and uh, uh, Naga. Uh, let's face it, the comedy characters. Um, you know, before they happened. She's memorised it. Uh, here's the thing. I do think the original series is better than Korra. Absolutely agree with that. But... I think a lot of what made the original series great is still present in Korra. I think the dialogue is great. I think the characters, while maybe not, uh, I may be not as attached to them as the original cast, I still like them and there are a lot of interesting people there. Um, I would agree that book one kind of feels like, um, it kind of feels like a lot of the story threads from book one have not carried over. The equalist but, movement is effectively forgotten. Yeah. And I wonder how, cause you have to remember book one was originally envisioned as a self-contained one-off thing. Yeah. And, um, I feel like a lot of the problems with, uh, trying to carry over that stuff is because of that. I think they had no plans to carry on the equalist movement. And so decided, well, Let's come up with something that we can carry on for a long period of time uh, and really expand on the fiction. And I, I'm disappointed that the equalists seem to be this element of the fiction that is going to be forgotten. But I'm really excited um, about the direction that Cora is taking now. So I'm willing to forgive that because um, I think the creators do know what they're doing, ultimately. I feel like there is like a grain of truth to almost all of these little complaints like that. Like I can see in a limited sense, like there is like, I can see it to a lesser extent. Each of these complaints I can see as sort of like, yeah, there, there might've been like a bit of a misstep in that regard with this series. Or I can see like some, some minor little flaws that could be nitpicked at with most each of these complaints. But 
or as Jake seems to be like kind of feeling like it really just renders the entire series just kind of pointless and weak. I, I still feel like it's really quite strong. I feel like these are good, these are very small little flaws here and there that have surfaced that we've talked about probably like kind of at length just throughout these podcasts. But I still think it's very strong on the whole. Yeah. Part of part of the issue I strongly suspect <clears throat> is simply that the bar was set so high. Yeah. Um for the for the first round and one of the things that seems to be consistent with a lot of the plot developments that aren't really developments or they'll they'll start something and then they seem to very much wrap it up and tie the bow off a little bit too quickly sometimes even before the end of the episode um and it's almost like ah i thought you were going to go somewhere with that and then no you've just kind of rounded it off but i don't know if this was the case but there seemed almost to be this threat of cancellation Mm. And and this constant feeling of we don't actually know how much more of this story we're going to get to tell. And it almost seems like they're afraid with Korra to, to start the long three-season arc yeah. that was what was so fantastic about Legend of Aang. It's, I mean, it's perfectly understandable because it is a common history with great animated shows where they gear up to set off their epic tale mm. and their funding can just be cut off and it leaves a sour tone for everybody. Yeah, look at Wolverine and the X-Men the way- when it gave that uh, Age of Apocalypse tease at the end of the series. I was like... Argh! If you if you look at the way TV networks have this irritating tendency to behave, when no one's paying attention to the series and it's just space filler... Yeah, that's fine. They'll let it run and run. You carry on. You do whatever it is you want to do. All of a sudden, everybody's looking at it. And it's like, right, now we have you by the short and curlies. You do what we want. And if it's not perfect, we will yank you. Young Justice. I have to yeah. bring that up. It's just... <laughs> and Green, Green Lantern. Lantern. And Green Lantern as well. My I think that the, different, the difference being, though, Green Lantern kind of ended in a way where it could stop there and it's fine. Mm. Whereas Young Justice ended with this cliffhanger that's like, oh my god, season three, and we're never going to get it now. It's exactly the same. Yeah, it's exactly the same as Spectacular Spider-Man, Wolverine, and the X-Men, and so many others. That's my list of heroes. I'm not going to rant. Neither am I. Has it got toys? No, we don't want it then. To be honest... Why no car toys still?! It's it's crazy. Because she's a girl. They can't do girl toys because boys won't buy girl toys. And girls, as we know, don't Why buy Why are marketers still what? making decisions I, I, Because I, they're I kind, idiots. I kind of oh, wish that Cartoon Network was in control of uh, The Legend of Korra because the way they've treated Adventure Time, they've kind of embraced its complete insanity <laughs> and merchandise. So merch. Yeah, and... Like, but they're really I, cool merch as well. It's not yeah, just no, like Yeah, no, it's good crap. stuff. I mean, they have... I, I believe they have figures of characters like Marceline and uh, yeah. Princess yeah. Bubblegum. And I saw yeah. a wallet, which was Jake's head. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of Jake's head stuff. Ca- Cartoon Network... Uh, well, they cancelled Young Justice, so I hate them for that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> And Green Lantern. Um, but like, they seem to make more smart decisions than Nick, uh, Nickelodeon do. Nickelodeon seem to, 
not realize when they have a gold mine on their hands. Like, it took them forever to release the Legend of Korra soundtrack. And it was because track team were like fighting and fighting and going, no, it will sell well. Trust us. And lo and behold, it was like number one in the soundtrack uh, charts. What does charts a digital ages. release really entail as well? I know. And it's crazy. And I, I think track team were like talking about it. Like, it, they were ready. They, like they had all the tracks ready. It's not like to any be work released. needed to be done. It was really just, you know, Nickelodeon going, "Yeah, you could do it." Also, um, Nickelodeon brokered the deal that put Shyamalan in the director's seat. <sighs> they had, they just gave him it, gave him the keys to the kingdom, and said, "Yeah, you watched it with your kids. You know what you're doing." Genius. Uh, to their credit, they continue to fund this series. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. And it's an expensive series. Let's not climb on Nickelodeon's ass for this one. Not only do they they continue this, there's more coming. And, um, that's why I never got pissed off at any point while watching Legend of Korra, because I was just so grateful. That it was yeah, just, like, every time we're saying, that's still a good show. It sounds like we're on the back foot. As far as I'm concerned, now that Green Lantern's off the air, it's the greatest show on airing on TV right now. There's no, oh, it's still good. It, I, that's, that's ridiculous. That's like saying The Hobbit. Oh, it's still a good film series. It's not as good as Lord of the Rings. Yes, but it's really good. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. Like, it's not as good as the original series, but the original series was the greatest animated show ever made. It's still very good compared to most yeah. of the terrible stuff that we get exposed to. So no defensiveness from me and no on the back foot. I am just happy that it's still coming, same as The Hobbits. Agreed. Um, like, I can still see, like... Oh, yeah, like, no, I, to, to, yeah. To, to, to credit, like, I can see, like... Like okay, so it says irritating, boring lead characters. Like I don't think they're that irritating, but there is something to the fact that they are that we are not as, as attached to this group, nearly as attached to this group as we are to the end group by this point. And I think that's actually one of the things that's keeping this. I think that's one of the main reasons this isn't on the end level is because we that's something that they still need to kind of fix. So the ultimate point being, there are flaws there, no denying, but they are strewn amidst a sea of great things and i think that the like that makes maybe even makes the flaws stand out a little more not only because they're surrounded by so many great aspects but because of all the greatness from the previous series as well so it's still not an equal to the ang series quite yet i still think it could turn into one i may not really be that like as attached to Korra at this point that i want to be but i wasn't as attached i wasn't super attached to zuko in at the end of season two as i was at season three either like I think it's a problem that we're not as attached, like in a storytelling sense, that we're not as attached to these characters as we should be yet. But I don't think it's non-fixable. And even so, this is a really great series. <laughs> like these are small flaws in a pretty great thing.
just because I love the fact that it's still coming out doesn't mean it's unimpeachable to me. It's, yeah. it's still full of flaws, but they're so perfectly balanced by everything that's got going for it. Yeah, so I mean, carry on. I, I still have negatives that I'm going to go into later on in this mm-hmm. podcast. I just, me too. I think when you measure. When you take into account everything in this season, I think the good outweighs the bad. And I'm not going to ignore the bad. It's definitely a prob- you know, a problem. And I feel like because I'm so passionate about this series and because I care about this universe so much, I'm not going to give the creators a free pass on that stuff. Mm. I think absolutely they need to fix a lot of things. I'm not as attached to these main characters as the original cast. And, but I, I do think in a lot of ways it's because you know a lot of things that make things um that sentence was terrible a lot of things Uh, that make things the reason why a lot of um great creative works are perfect in a in several ways is because of luck in a lot of instances and i feel i feel like the original series was kind of just this this continuous like Daisy chain of luck. Yeah, it, it like it happens sometimes though, because like it happened with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like for me, like um, the, a lot of events conspired to create. Like Viggo Mortensen uh, being Aragorn was luck, as opposed to Stuart Townsend. Yeah, you think about all the components that created that trilogy. A lot of them were down to a lot of them were down to the talent that were working on that series but a lot of them were also down to circumstance Providence. and yeah and I, I think you have to take that into account and i think cora is a great series but for whatever reason the the wires haven't crossed in the same way it did with the original series mm. but you know, that said, I'm, I'm still glad that they haven't gone down. Like, I don't think, uh, the comparison to the prequels is justified because I don't think, um, the creators have gone mad with power. I think, <laughs> I, I, I think, all turkey neck. The, the creators clearly care what the fans think. Uh, and I, and hearing interviews with them and, and, and commentary, uh, with those two guys, I, I think they they feel as though the fan base own this universe as much as they do, mm. and I think that is a very um, uh, I think that's a very wise approach when you're dealing with a uh, with a universe that's touched uh, so many people emotionally. It it can't just be yours anymore. Like as much as it's your baby, you have to. You have to um, you have to realize that you know it's affected a lot of people, and a lot of your decisions affect a lot of those people, and you have to take that into account. Look at how many episodes Cora's had so far to do that, compared to how many there were yeah. in the original series. So beginning far, of season two now at the moment, technically. Yeah, yeah, and and, and uh, it's and it's hard to remember this now because we've gone on that long journey with Ang and his gang, but. I wasn't that attached to them during book one, for most of book one. Mm. It was only towards the last, like, four episodes of that season where I started to think, okay, actually, this seems like this is going to go some really interesting directions. And then it was book two that sold me on it. Um, 
I think uh, Cora benefited from the fact that I was already sold on the universe. Um, so when I went into book one, like there, there were a lot of elements about that, uh, that first season that I was already attached to, like bending uh, the culture, the, the people. I'm already invested in that stuff. It's just the characters now that you need to sell me on. Um, and I, I am sold on them, uh, to an extent. I'm just, the fact that I had such an emotional reaction to Iroh appearing at all speaks volumes about how attached I am to the original cast. You have to like, signify Uncle Iroh. Yeah, I. Not General Iroh. Yeah, Uncle Iroh. Yeah, when he showed up, I, I, I lost my mind. Like, I had that, like, Scooby Doo double take moment that, and, my, just, I, I felt close to tears, because, I felt close to tears because Iroh, I had got, I felt like I knew Iroh, like I know an actual human being, and, um. There's I more to it than that though, Josh. Uh, yeah. They were resurrecting Marco. True. They were bringing back a man who has passed on and being paid reverent homage by Greg Baldwin. Mm. Um, the fact that Iroh came back at all for uh, book three was uh, brilliantly handled, especially with that um, uh, all, already pre-planned um, period of silence where we were denied his voice. The, uh, the bringing him back um, it felt very special and very measured and sort of bringing that character through to what they intended to do with him in the first place uh, but then bringing him back here it makes him seem kind of uh, totemic to the series mm. you two look lost maybe I can help you I know you I was good friends with Avatar Aang Iroh hello Korra Basically, for this season, I've decided not to watch episodes, but I wait till all was out, mm. didn't look at any threads or anything, and just watched it all as one go. Oh, really? And I, you just literally yeah, waited until the very that. end, and then just... Okay, yeah. cool. Because one of the things you got to remember, a lot of people, I think yourselves included, experienced um, Legend of Aang all as one yeah. big chunk. You didn't have the points at which you could analyze certain parts of the episode and Some build might up say overanalyze <laughs> <laughs> and build up expectations or find issues with things whereas when i feel, find that when you watch something in one group you can still pick out the negatives but they sort of because you get the follow up to it mm. you tend to be able to look over those negatives a bit more and i feel that's something that's come up uh, from because now it's built up a more prominent following and people have been watching it episodically. They have had these um, moments of reactions, mm. and obviously, s- some people felt more strongly about the negative things than others. Yeah, but the context of Iroh's appearance, specifically in the spirit world, yeah. So bringing back a um, a, a, a dead character originally played by a now dead actor in the context that he was, uh, it felt special. 
And I was actually kind of disappointed because I've been holding off the forum and I went back in and there was a lot of people going, oh, it's cheap fan service. I could not disagree more. That was such a carefully thought out move that I believe they've been planning for a long time. Like, okay, if Korra's going to go into the spirit world, who is the person that can guide her that is a, uh, a point that we will trust and that we will delight in seeing? That's not, not cheap. Not just that, they are dealing with quite a strong issue is oh, yeah. they're dealing with the afterlife of their universe. Like, yeah. not everybody just, people don't just disappear. In a world where spirits exist and they're quite prominent, you will interact with the dead if you go to the spirit world. It's a mm. fact. And some people have different fates from one another. And depending on how much you've accepted, like how in tune you are with the spirit world will affect uh, what sort of maybe form or what sort of life you live beyond. There are a lot of questions associated with it, but it feels a bit like asking lots of very probing questions about what the West equates to in Lord of the Rings. Uh, A lot of it is very symbolic, and it can't necessarily be tied down and pinned to the ground with physics. If Mike and Brian's ultimate goal is cheap fan service, then they have been going about it all the wrong way. (laughs) So much about this series is casting out old formula and decide all right let's see let's what can we do new a new completely new avatar very different kind of character in a completely different era completely different world so much is changing that so much is about to change going into this next season i think it's just pretty essential to have little small links to the old hmm. stuff to make it still feel tied together to make it still feel like what happened then still has still echoes into this era of the four nations world so i think it's i think it's and i think it makes those little links when they pop up like when uh iroh resurfaces i think it makes it all the more like all the more special and all the more uh important one of the series it reminds me of specifically this series with uh, rava and vatu legend of zelda yeah no um, the Triforces yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. But the idea of time passing and much is different, much stays the same, but there is a certain consistency, specifically in this case the spirit world, that maintains itself as the human world moves forwards. Gora, what's wrong? We came here with my friend, but we lost her, and now I'm all alone. You are not alone, Gora. It's okay. No! not okay! Janora's gone and I need to find her! She's lost and we need to go home! I don't like the spirit world! I don't want to be here anymore! Did you say something to her? Me? You're the one with the big mouth! Laura, please stop! Look at what you're doing to everyone! I did that? In the spirit world, your emotions become your reality, especially for the Avatar, because you are the bridge between the two worlds. You must try to stay positive. I'm sorry. Even in the material world, you will find that if you look for the light, you can often find it. 
But if you look for the dark, that is all you will ever see. I apologize if I'm dominating the conversation. Oh, you totally are. But it's fine. I love the passion. <laughs> it, it's just, I, I really, really care about this universe. So that I find myself having, well, one having of the things I'd say. One of the type things I always wait for is when you say somebody else talk now. <laughs> <laughs> it, <huh. laughs> My God. I've, I've been keeping it as silent as I can. This is unusual for me. But like I said, a lot of what you guys are saying is mirrored uh, uh, in, in mine. Uh, so it's like I don't have to say anything. It's it's great. Was anyone else extremely good? The whole thing was about spirits in the whole world. No. There was a moment I went to the tree, the three of them. And I was ah. honestly expecting the co to come out. We've, we've been second-guessing co for years now, haven't we? We've been like, any minute now, co's going to come out. Any minute <laughs> yeah. now. Any minute now. Still no cup. Once we give up on Co, like oh, Co's never gonna turn up. (laughs) Nobody expects Co. He he might, uh, because obviously what's happening in the secret, they might make him more, well he's a bit more prominent in that than in the series. He's he's just he's a really interesting part of the Avatar uh, yeah. fiction that we only got a glimpse of, specifically it, a major spirit force. Yeah, and and I in in some ways I'm kind of glad that um, they haven't overused him. Yeah. But come on, <laughs> some more co. We could do with a bit more co. Um, no, he was none so of the spirit sweet. world is. Joined to the physical one, he yeah, could probably wreak all sorts of havoc. Oh God! Someone would have to hunt him down. <laughs> uh, the panda says, "I've come to realize that sometimes the adults in the audience tend to forget that these characters are teenagers. As an adult, I tend to analyze a character's behavior with an adult mind. But Cora is seventeen. Then I think back to when I was seventeen, and I can remember quite a few times where I snapped up my loved ones out of anger. If I found out that my parent or sibling was lying to me, I could be very resentful and abrasive." And Cora's doing exactly that. She's reacting like a 17-year-old. Now Cora's behavior doesn't bother me. I think they depict Tenzin's family dynamics in a very realistic manner. I grew up with a twin sister, and I do understand the kind of uneasiness that Kaya and Bumi are going through. Growing up, I didn't have much difficulty with school, while my sister had to battle her way through it, suffering from ADD. I always felt a bit jealous that my achievements always seemed to be regarded as less than my sister's. I would bring home A's on my report card and get a good job, while my sister brought home C's and my parents threw a parade, so to speak. I sound like a total jealous bitch, but when you're eight years old and your achievements aren't as highlighted as your siblings, it it can harbor that a bit. As an adult, there's no more animosity regarding that situation, I assure you. I love my sister and the two nephews she gave me to death. I think this is what Kaya and Bumi are going through. Tenzin being an airbender, Aang might have concentrated more on him unconsciously, thus spoiling him more than the other two. I'm sure he loved them as much as he did Tenzin, but I'm thinking that in Bumi's case especially, being a non-bender, he may have felt incredibly left out or misunderstood growing up, and he's never come to terms with that resentment toward his brother and sister. They've mentioned as well that Kaya had been away for a while, trying to find herself. It may have been the same for her to a lesser extent, her mother being a waterbender, thus having one parent concentrating on her at least, but still feeling left out by her father. All of this may lead to the dynamic between the three siblings, with Tenzin being picked on by his brother and sister. I think Katara's saddened look at the banquet may have been her just being sad that her children are still bickering and picking on each other, wishing they'd address the issue. 
I think that's exactly why she told Tenzin to bring his brother and sister along to the air temple so they'd spend some time together and hopefully try to settle their differences and talk everything out. What Katara tells him when he gets to be her age, he'll want to have spent a lot more time with his siblings really resonated with me. And it's made me regret the many fights I had with my sister when we were young. Katara knows, like I do, that spending time together and addressing their issues will bring them closer and most of all bring balance between the siblings. That resonates a lot with me as well. Mm. And finally, the K's Blade says, I am so happy that this forum exists because almost every other online outlet I am part of seems to dislike what we've seen so far. I absolutely love it. Maybe it's just because I'm looking at it through an American lens, but I feel like the writers are drawing significant parallels to the reconstruction and reclamation of the American South through the use of martial law though seemingly before the Civil War actually takes place in this case. I could be completely wrong on this, but uh, some of the way the characters are talking and the fact that it's literally coming down to brother versus brother, I couldn't help but draw the comparison. Good stuff, folks. And uh, I'm also so happy that uh, Gonzo Planet's forum exists. Point of contention for me, uh, and uh, I'm going to ask this question. It's a very simple one, but it uh, will have a very expansive answer. What was Unalok's motivation? I'm not entirely sure. That is a problem. (laughs) I I feel as if... um, it started off simply he got essentially what he wanted at the start start of his whole crusade which was to control the northern tribe but being essentially having that connection to the spirit world I feel he eventually became influenced by um, crap I forgot the spirit's name Vatu. Vatu he eventually became far more influenced by Vatu's darkness and became more megalom- megalomaniacal. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> I, th- I think my major problem with Unalog is that the more revelations about what he's trying to do uh, are revealed to the uh, the audience, the less his motivations make sense. Like yeah. early on, when it was about let's restore. You know the Southern Water Tribe to the, the to our traditional ways, our spiritual ways. I was like, okay, that that makes sense as an antagonist's um, uh, uh, motivation, trying to restore things to the way they used to be. But then they reveal, oh, he's actually trying to join with Unalok and become the Dark Avatar. Vatu. And, uh, sorry, um, but then they reveal that he's trying to join with Vatu and become the Dark Avatar. And as somebody so well-versed in the spirits as Unalok is, you'd think he would know exactly what Vatu wants to accomplish. And if it was simply... He's basically going to destroy the world and... I don't think that makes sense for any character. Um, even... Maybe... Go on, sorry, Kai. I was just thinking maybe he thought that... Because obviously he had a taste of power when he chopped his brother so he could become leader of the Northern Water Tribe. Yeah. But maybe he thought that 
you just got to taste some more power. He thought if he took on Butter and became the Dark Avatar, he'd be able to control him and it would just make him more powerful. It just became about power, which is a very shallow way of looking at it, but... But That's yeah. kind of nothing, nothing about his character led me to believe that was the case. With Fire Lord exactly. Ozai, that was definitely his primary motivation. He was greedy. He was addicted to the power of being a supreme ruler. He wanted to control everything. So... While I don't think Fire Lord Ozai is as interesting as Azula or Amon, his motivation still makes sense in the context of the story that they were trying to tell. One that had, yeah. not incidentally, been passed down from grandfather to father to son. Yes. I'll admit it wasn't consistent with Unalak at all. It just suddenly popped up towards the end of just uber power. And I, I even had the moment, I was like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> Sharon? Um, yeah, if you look at um, the way uh, Ozai's desire for power manifests itself, it's not just in the way he handles the Fire Nation, it's in the way he handles his family. Everything about him is this sociopathic need for control. And then, as you say, <clears throat> as you say because you've seen how he's interacted with his own father, how his grandfather behaved, you can see where that need for control and that desire for power has been passed down. Whereas with Unalok, it is just, it did just seem to spiral into this more power, more power, more power, more power, which is very, very boring if you don't see anything of why he wants that power. What has led him to the point where he thinks that 10,000 years of darkness are better than the alternative. Mm. And while we're at it, referring to wanting to become a dark avatar and wanting to initiate 10,000 years of, of, of darkness, which admittedly he doesn't see it as chaos, but basically that's what it's going to end up being. That's up there with Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. You don't... Yeah think you're evil when you're trying to accomplish something it's the polar opposite of Amon like and I feel like in many ways they had a tough act to follow because I really like Amon as an antagonist I think his motivations make perfect sense he's complex his um his origin story is tragic and fascinating and his plan isn't really that evil he's not trying to destroy the world or even kill people he just wants to Equalize. create his idea of balance now obviously it was completely uh, a completely flawed idea and completely unsustainable when you consider the fact that uh, benders are just going to uh, appear again anyway mm. because of the way genetics work and that there was but, inequality in war before and after benders and that there is in our world with no benders but it still made sense that amon would believe that that mm. he would he think was a man that of conviction way. yeah and and i feel like amon was also really scary um in a way when you think about um, what Amon was trying to do, it kind of doesn't make sense that Amon is more scary than Unalok. Because Unalok is going to kill everyone, essentially. Like, Spectacle creep, though. But, yeah, no, that's yeah. the thing. Because... Unalok sneered, especially by the end, yeah. a lot in that kind of evil Saturday morning cartoon way. 
I, I think she, because the threat that Amon represented was so much more intimate, mm. he was essentially because bending isn't just powers to the people that use them. It's a part of their identity. It's a part of how they think of themselves and how they fit into the world around them. He was ripping out a, an essential part of people's identity. And that's really personal and really intimate. And I think that's something that's terrifying to anyone. It goes beyond that, though. Yeah. Um, in, in a cartoon such as this, an animated show, uh, you can't have the villain killing main characters left, right, yeah. and center. They just it would upset the children so characters very rarely die in this kind of show at all and think about the actual body count at the end of three books worth of uh, Last Airbender yeah. however they proved that they or at least until the very end where they reversed it they would be quite happy to leave central characters that you adored bending free and technically uh, Amon could do that to half the cast and they'd say, right, deal with that. And that's See, terrifying to us because you know he's not going to kill Korra, uh, but might he take away her bending? I, See, I feel like I, have, I might just have this tendency to make up theories to make myself feel better. But <laughs> I do the same thing myself. <laughs> For me, it's very much... Um, because I feel, because Unlock had this connection to the spirit world from probably a young age, very much as um, yeah. Tenzin's, Tenzin's oldest did, I feel as if he might have, it comes back to my old theory of the, he's been influenced by, oh, I keep forgetting his name. Fartu. Fartu. Like, he, from a young age, he, I like he that. encountered Vatu <laughs> and his naivety allowed Vata to have more influence over him as he got older. and In the same the way that Jinora was friends with Furryfoot, who was not what yeah. he seemed. So, he's, of course, this is just my theory, but it's no, no, it's who's been, like, over his shoulder this whole time, like, prodding Like an evil little imaginary friend. Directions. And not quite a puppet, but... Oh my Close god, that would enough. have been such a good episode. That's the thing, like, this is great, like what you're saying, but they never showed us any of that, mm. and so, as much as I want that to be true, the, f the, you know, the fact they, di they didn't show how Unalok became the person he is yeah. meant that I didn't understand him yeah. or what he was trying the, to achieve. We didn't see the breakdown also, of ethics. He yeah. changes his methods as well, because if you look at the way he behaves um, towards the beginning of the series, he's very manipulative, and it's all about um, getting people to lie for him and, um, you know, exerting influence in incredibly subtle ways. And then there's this sudden shift, and it just becomes about how much spirit energy he can throw at people. So interesting, when Studio Perro are handling him, he's much more interesting. Suddenly Studio Mir get hold of him, and he just becomes this awesome waterbender. Yeah. What is um, it with all the evil waterbenders all of a sudden? Well, you know, yeah, that, see, that doing a, a simple reprise of two conflicting waterbending brothers, I think, was a mistake. Mm. Yeah. I love the Civil War idea, but yeah. it... it it was a bit too on the nose with the completely opposite brothers. Yeah. And I will say I really love having this, like, Cora's entire story so, like, 
I love the fact that almost all of the antagonists from the series have come from the Water Tribe. When in Ang series, they were pretty much all the good. Not only were they all kind of the good guys, but they were all very much kind of the same. Like all waterbenders seem kind of like the same thing. But yeah. now we have like we can have people from the Water Tribe like Varric, who's completely unlike anything you've seen in, <laughs> of Water Tribe people in Ang series. And you're, you, there's a lot more variety to the people. And seeing See, having, having antagonists come from the Water Tribe now, it's just it's a nice change. It's there have been very few firebending antagonists almost at all in Korra series. Now thinking back on it, I quite like the fact the way that Korra reacts to this whole civil war situation because she's a person she wants sides, she wants a definitive answer. Yeah. And when it comes to this way, you can't just leap in and start punching and this yeah. is my shades of these right. are my sides. Especially being the avatar, she essentially she's the worst sort of personality for this situation. <laughs> And having to deal with this and helps her grow more. But it makes sense that she'd react that way because she has a personal stake in that conflict. Like, her family is the part of the Southern Water Tribe, so it absolutely makes sense that she would immediately take sides with them. Although she doesn't actually immediately take... No, she does start off as a diplomat, doesn't she? Mm. But then when that fails... Yeah, she tries, She's a but then she uh, yeah. shoves a, a, a judge's head in a polar bear dog's mouth and says, <laughs> tell me what I need to know or die. He's hungry. <laughs> Josh, you yeah. said that uh, Amon's a, a tough act to follow. They actually didn't need to do much with yeah. Unlock with what they had to make him really interesting for the Absolutely. end. Here is how they could do it. This is just off the top of my head, and that was what there was when we were watching it earlier today that I realized this would have been great. Unalok wants to reunite the spirit world and the, um, the, the, the human world. And that seemed to be what he wanted to begin with in, in the uh, series. And if that was effectively what he wanted the whole way through, and he wanted uh, the whole the portals opening thing is a MacGuffin anyway. You can make up whatever rules that that uh, refers to. Uh, but the idea of Vatu whispering to him and giving him ideas of how he could make this happen, but Vatu's main interest really being to become free. And the idea being, you let me go and let me free and I will make sure that the spirit world and the human world are combined again. Then, at the point when this happens, have Vatu start to combine with him and have Unalok say, what have I done? Yeah. And realize what Vatu's real plan is. And, you know, because ultimately Vatu can be the, the, the absolute black uh, darkness for, for Korra to smash um, well, in, in kaiju state. Yeah, he's a one-dimensional shadow of a villain, and that's fine. He can be in his tree. But the interesting side of it could be Unalok as he suddenly realizes what he's done with his good intentions to bring the races back together and to actually have a regretful antagonist. So... And, Loki, then, basically, is what basically, you're saying. Yeah. Or uh, Amon only, rather than them going, uh, rather than Amon, when his uh, paint uh, washes off, going, cheese it! And buggering <laughs> off, have Amon actually confronted with the uh, magnitude of what he has sown. But yeah, the, the idea of, of Unlock realizing, oh my god, 10,000 years of darkness and it's all my fault, that's, that's a brilliant moment. Yeah. Completely lost because he's busy going, ah, ha, 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 10,000 years of darkness. I shall be a new avatar. A dark avatar. <laughs> I shall grow a mustache and twiddle it. <laughs> and then he turns into a kaiju and then Cora smashes him with her giant gypsy danger form, which is, which is awesome to watch. 
but uh, it, it lacks substance. It lacks compelling character. Yeah. And what they um, again, listening to the uh, the um, commentaries on season one, which I actually think is really, really bloody good now. Um, I, I liked it the first time, but the more I watch it, the more I love it. Um, the ho- most of the second to last episode, if you remember, was Tarlock going into the character motivations of the main antagonist. Mm-hmm. And he showed the boy going into the man and his values becoming twisted. And they said themselves on the commentary, this is why it's fascinating to get this done now and then have the uh, end, the finale action sequence, but so that you know what's at stake and what's at play there. That is a brilliant way of storytelling. But we didn't get that because we were we, we never got that episode where you really find out what Unalak's about. And there were 14 episodes in this season, and at least one of them I could quite have done without. It involved yes. Bolin being Nanook of the North. <laughs> Um, can we can we talk about Varric? Because Please. I feel like we're heading in that direction. Unalak will never find me. Inside Ping Ping! How are we doing? Ah, thank you, Julie. Your assistant's in there, too? Julie never leaves my side. You forgot the honey! Sorry, sir. There isn't any in here. No honey? We're in a bear for crying out loud! I'm going to go see how Cora's doing. Bolin, I got a little something for you round back. Go. He is the most interesting antagonist in this series. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's a shame that he's so underused because his motivations make sense. Mm. They are in many ways horrible motivations. He's motivated by greed. But, but it's, it's not beautiful. Yeah, Quick no, quest. he's not, he, he's not, he is basically manipulating events to financially benefit him. Um, Obadiah Stane. Yeah, and... But with Tony I, Stark's personality. Um, quick question. Yeah. Did any of you for a brief moment think that maybe Zuli was the mastermind before, behind it all? Yes. <laughs> She's yeah. a hard, cold mastermind. <laughs> Conceptually, I... I love the idea of an antagonist who plays the fool mm, only yes. for it to be revealed that he is a lot smarter than anyone is giving him credit for. And there was a weird turnabout though, because after that, he goes back to being the fool. I'm like, hang on, I thought he was all mustache twiddly and actually I've been manipulated. No, I, 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 that I, was just a mask. No, but no that's, that's who he really is. He's very upfront about like, once he's been caught, he's like, yeah, um, that's what I was doing. Look at my prison. <laughs> you, I saved your business. You, I got your phone in jail. Wait a minute, that's bad. I, and I, I think he was the funniest character in this season. I oh, yeah. think he added a, a much-needed uh, layer of levity to proceedings. It's a shame that the storyline he takes part in doesn't really go anywhere or have any long-lasting impact on the the world it but he's like still the story yeah but he's still out there he's still alive he escapes from jail mm. so i i really hope to see him again because um in a season that i think was uh missing a 
strong antagonist. He was that one bright light um, that was saying, why aren't you focusing on him? Yeah. He's so much more interesting. Um, yeah. Um, well, it's I, rare we see a funny villain. Yeah, no. Absolutely. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. John that, Michael, it, oh, I'd say villain, uh, antagonist again. He's, yeah. it's, villainous is, is too cheap to call him. He's played by John Michael Higgins, who, uh, folks might remember from, uh, Arrested Development. If you've seen Best in Show, he was Scott. Anybody? Also in, commu- in, also in Community. As well. Yes. As the Seize the Day professor. Yes. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, yes. Now I remember. Yeah. I've actually animated to his voice before. He was a pretty prominent Cars character in one of our in one of our uh, little shorts we made. Oh, right. He's so really you actually to animated too. to John Michael Higgins? Yeah, he's really fun to animate, too. He's got an awesome voice. He, he was the so perfect casting to... for this character. It is so rare that I get to talk to someone who's actually done that. <laughs> what, what's, what's it like animating a car? <laughs> Come on, Dan. In some, in some regards... Uh, uh, well, this will get cut, I'm sure. In some regards, it is, in some ways, it's kind of easy because it is just a head on wheels. So you don't have to worry about any of the complexities of like weight shifting and limbs and fingers and all the really complex stuff. In other regards, you have to animate it, like making it act because it is just a head on a car, like trying to convey body language with just basically a head on wheels is really tricky and making it move around. Like, say you want your, Character, say you want the character to just turn a little bit to look at somebody else, like to his right. You can't just have him turn. You have to make him do like a three-point turn to like <laughs> back up, pull forward. Like it's it can be a little weird dealing with their driving, but it's a it's a fun challenge though. It's like trying to communicate whilst inside a car with somebody else in another car nearby. <laughs> it's it takes some creativity finding ways to get the characters like differentiated from each other. But yeah, like it's it, it can, it's kind of a fun challenge. Oh, no, hang on. It's like trying to communicate inside a car to someone else in another car when you're both wearing neck braces. <laughs> <laughs> okay, three-point turn. Um, okay, so from Varric, uh, there's a couple of other antagonists in this series, Eska and Desna, uh, who tend to, again, feature mostly in the B story. It felt very much an A story and B story kind of uh, season. Um, yeah. Thoughts on Eska and Desna and... Uh, how they added to or subtracted from proceedings. They I really like having them, actually. Like, like I feel, whereas Unalak is a bit of a missed opportunity, and he's sort of like a King Ozai, except, like, Ozai isn't really especially interesting himself. He's a big intimidating force. What's interesting about Antagonist is the, like, the people Ozai sends out, like, his, like, the his arms out and out in the uh out in the world like they're the ones that have lots of personality and depth and and conflict where like these two i guess didn't have tons of like depth or conflict to them but they had a lot more character yeah and uh and again provided tons of great laughs as well i appreciated that they were exploring a different style of humor with those two characters because usually the humor in uh, avatar is quite over the top and uh, goofy in a good way though uh, but these two are very dry mm. in their delivery and it's um, that detachedness to everything that seems to go around them 
Actually, that didn't, it didn't seem like they would seem out of place in Adventure Time, now that I think about it, yeah. in, in terms of the, yeah. the, the goth girl and her ever-present twin brother. Yeah, some great lines, though. Like, <laughs> I grant you permission to speak freely. Oh, good, because I just need to be honest with you. You know, when we first met, there was this crazy spark, but I'm starting to feel like that spark is fading. I agree. It is as if a great chasm has formed between us and nothing can bridge it. Oh, Oh, yes, I'm so glad you understand. Nothing that is, except marriage. <gasps> we will wed at sunset. You may express your joy through tears. <laughs> My trembling turtle dove. That's me when I leave. <laughs> You're so cute when you grovel. Win me prizes. <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, pretty much everything she says is very quotable. Um, I forget the uh, the voice actress's name, uh, but she's done a lot of other work. <laughs> Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, I think I'm saying that right. Yeah, she she's um she's been in a lot of stuff. She's in Scott Pilgrim the movie actually. Uh, she plays the the really bitchy girl with glasses yeah. in. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> she's that uh, she... goth monster in Monsters University. Yeah, yeah. She's getting the one kind of like. Uh, she does it really well. Yeah, <laughs> she was seemed to be mainly there to um, motivate Bolin because he's the uh, main character that she uh, interacts with. How did you feel about Bolin's arc throughout this series? It, it was there just to give him something to do. <laughs> if I'm being really reductive, um, I like Bolin mm-hmm. uh, despite a lot of issues I have with the way they use him. I think my major uh, problem, though, is I keep... It's so easy to compare Bolin to uh, Sokka. Yeah. And Which is unfair, really, just because he's funny. Yeah, but a lot of their humour is similar, and it, it's dra- drawn from a similar place. Mm. But I think Sokka, uh, Sokka had a... A, a really human base um, that Bolin doesn't seem to have a lot of the time. Um, I was emotionally attached to Sokka as a as a really active part of the narrative uh, that was going on in the original series, and he evolved and he became. He wasn't that competent to start with, but he became competent. He became mm. a a, a force to be reckoned with. Bolin's still kind of the bumbling fool, mm. um, and it's kind of disappointing that they're not really evolving him into more than that. Mm. The night. Like- sorry, um, Jerome first, then Sharon, then me. See, I actually I quite enjoy him his little adventures, especially because he's less morally. Uh, how how do I put this? He's he's not too plus about doing certain morally ambiguous things. <laughs> <laughs> That's damning with faint praise. Well, it's it's more of that naivety. Yeah. And the fact that he's grown up literally on the street sort you of thing. You mean he where... doesn't think too deeply about doing things? No. <laughs> and I yeah. did like his little moment at the end where he... Saved the president? Yeah. <laughs> but it... <laughs> Hang on, Josh. Sharon's done. Sorry. 
I think my my issue with Bolin in this series is that um, I could personify it with the phrase wasted opportunities. They had um, his arc in the first season was relatively small, but it was there and it was. Um, the way he was characterized was that, you know, he's Marco's younger brother and because they've grown up on the streets, Marco's always been incredibly protective of him and that's why he's naive. Um, and, you know, things happened throughout, like the, the moment where he's, uh, when he goes on the date with Cora and then kind of realizes that it's not really going to go anywhere, but after a few moments of, you know, bawling his eyes out, he kind of goes, huh, oh well, that's life and moves on. And it's, they were quite nice little ways of showing that that he's a person and he has feelings and there's a reason that he has those feelings. But I think in this season, they didn't go anywhere with that. He remains very naive. He doesn't really twig what's happening a lot of the time. He allows other people to use him to no real end other than for the, the physical comedy jokes. And there's a couple of moments, particularly um, the one that we picked up on today was the... Uh, when Marco's in prison and Bolin comes to see him and brings him a poster. He could also have given him a, a rock hammer. Well, I mean, not even necessarily that, but you've got the opening there for, you know, even if it's a big overly winky moment, that there is actually more going on in Bolin's skull than it would appear. You know, he is actually thinking about things and, and having ideas. But the the one part of his whole story that I really, really liked was right at the end when he has that moment with Eska mm. where he they've they've done the whole, you know, well we we said we we were in love again because we thought that the world was going to end. He actually has this moment of almost yeah. devastation when she says, actually, no, this isn't going to happen. I'm walking away. Um, and I felt really awful for him. And I thought, mm. you know, they, they could have been doing that throughout the whole season and they just didn't. Mm. The uh, not tuck of the North uh, gag would have been, well, it is hilarious, and every time I see uh, the, uh, the 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 business related to it, it does make me smile and laugh. But it does take up a rather large amount of real estate of the series without actually achieving anything beyond the initial sniggering gag that it related to. It's it's propaganda, uh, a nod towards uh, Nanook of the North, which is a 1922 silent documentary film by. Robert J. Flaherty, where he documented the life of some Inuit. Once again, this is just me making up ideas I'd like to see. I would have liked to see Bolin go off with Denser and Esker and them having their own little side adventures. Yeah. Because it seems like he's he's sort of trapped in in the goofball persona, like naive goofball persona in the team avatar because he's not, he has little to no responsibilities mm. and it, it gives him the opportunity to be less um, responsible with a lot of, with his decisions and everything because it, to him it doesn't seem to affect every, anything because it will all turn out okay by the end. Mm. That all of our main characters spend most of the season kind of off on their own, doing their own thing, seems like a bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah. Especially when they really need to, like, make up some time making us fall in love with this group of people. Yeah. Like, we, we've gotten, like, we're okay with them. They all seem pretty nice and interesting and, pot- and potentially great, but we, the first book didn't really make us, I mean, we're, 
we don't love them like we love the Ang Toff, the Sokka, Katara group yet. Not nearly that amount. And now, so like having some time to characterize them and have them kind of bounce off of each other and really like define their personalities a bit more, like would feels like something that would really help. And you don't have to have them all together to do that, but because they're like. Korra, we get to spend some time with at least. Mako gets to, like, Mako's just kind of feels dull. Asami has very little to do at all. Mako and Asami's detective work and business-related MacGuffins sort of blend into one another, and they both seem very concerned with what's going on. But when it comes down to it, it was just them being run rings around by Varric, and nothing really comes of that. See, I would have liked for those two elements to be more expanded, because mm. I I like I like the whole idea of Mako being a detective and Asami's trouble dealing with a failing business and trying to bring it back. Yeah, it's almost like the, there wasn't enough room in the series to give much time to it, but there was too much time in the series given to something which was not then expanded upon. Yeah, mm-hmm. there what there definitely still has not been one. Tales of Barting Say episode yet. Yeah. Uh, the closest we got in uh, season one was the one which was mostly focused on um, uh, pro bending. Uh, I think it's and the winner is, and uh, it's the one where um, Bolin and uh, Marco both try to date Cora at the same time. Uh, so yeah, that that you got some nice sort of fun characterization, just kicking back. And here's the thing, again. They dictate the terms of how the story goes. They were gathering up to this sort of end point where all the harmonic convergence takes place. What about just before the end, we've got one day left before this thing happens. Let's prepare. Okay, we've completely prepared. Now we have seven hours to kill. What do we do? And that seven hours becomes your Tales of Barsing Say episode when they've got nothing to do but wait and that's when you bring the characters out of them when they're idle and when they're kicking about and when they've got some, nothing to do in Republic City. That's when you bring them out of their shells and you get into them. But there was, instead of that, there was the friggin' president about to be kidnapped and Bolin's, the, the rubbish about that. And it's, it wasn't a bad episode, but it was a lot of busy work. That was the, um, the double episode about, uh, Harmonic Convergence and, um, uh, Night of a Thousand Stars. See, the issue with trying to have a Tales of Passing Save, Passing Save, if Passing Save, you've got to remember where they were in, in their arc at that point. Mm. Things had very much calmed down, whereas if they tried to do it here, they, everything is sort of building up so much that, and they, they haven't really earned, I, it's hard not to say it like this, but they haven't really earned a Tales of Passing Say yet. <laughs> Could well, you I, perhaps have a bottle episode? Get them trapped in one place. Um, should I just sit in a corner with the bucket on my head? Yeah. <laughs> and have them just reminisce about, because they've got nothing else to do and they can't move, have Bolin and Marco talk about when they were kids. Have Carla um, talk about when she did, was a kid. They actually did a short of when Bolin and Marco were oh, kids. Right. And how they that. started pro-bending. I, I would like to bring up an issue, another issue I have with this season, and it kind of links into what you've been talking about already. Um is that the pacing felt really all over the place, mm. mainly in the first half. And um, I think there would have been there would have been space for an, uh, a Bar Sing Se episode here because 
the pacing is so meandering yet so fast paced at the same time. Like they, they, they want things to happen all the time, but it's all over the place. Like characters are doing stuff over here that's really important. Uh, characters are over here doing stuff that's really important. And it, and it just doesn't focus on any one thing. And there's a lot of wasted time and a lot of wasted, you know, minutes on screen that could have been dedicated yeah. purely to characterization. Chasing the guffins, yeah. We we all understand the ideas of spirit doors opening and closing once within 10,000 years. You just have to say that fairly quickly. It made sense that there wasn't a lot of time for that in book uh, book one, Air, because everything was heading towards one direction. Uh, Book one, and it's one of the reasons why I like that season so much, has a real sense of momentum. Like Everything is barreling towards a conclusion um, everything is going in one direction and that's great and that's why it, it's fine that there isn't an episode there are a couple but there isn't really a proper episode dedicated to just let's hang out with these guys because there is important stuff going on uh, that needs to be addressed straight away there isn't really that much going on straight away in book two even though everyone's telling you there is i don't believe it as an audience member i don't believe that something uh, urgent is going on and and because of that i i feel like book two suffered in the first half i think they recovered from that um after beginnings part one and two there is an awful lot of suddenly there's a fight yeah. Um, and it, it goes back and forward and back and forward and here's some more bending and, and water being thrown around and all this kind of thing. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why so many long-term fans sighed with relief when beginnings happened yeah. because it was like they haven't forgotten. They, they, they do know what they're doing. They do still have the ability to do this. Apparently it's been said that the next season will come considerably faster than the last. Uh, does that mean it will be here earlier in 2014? Or just that it will be quicker paced? Because I don't think you can get much quicker earlier. paced than... Oh, earlier. Earlier in the year. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. They were apparently working on book three uh, towards the end of book two's development. So they kind of dive straight back, uh, straight into working on that season. So well, Apparently it's, the first four that- episodes have already completed. Oh, it's right, that okay. thing of knowing they already have their story set, they already know they've got the funding, so mm-hmm. once two was finished, they could jump right into yeah, three. Proceed. So basically almost treat uh, two and three like one long season. Okay, beginnings. Otherwise known as the episodes that uh, didn't necessarily win me back because I was totally with it, but that just grabbed me immediately, sat me down, and made me my jaw drop to the floor and remind me why I adored this series in the first place. One, the story of the first Avatar. Uh, for a start, this is the first one where Studio Mir turned up, and the artwork is... Stunning. <laughs> Beyond stunning. What's better than stunning? 
Okay, right. Just, life-shattering. I'm not going to <laughs> bombard you with superlatives, folks. Just think of the best superlatives in the world, and then double them, and you've got how good I feel the animation in Beginnings is. It's not Core necessarily... Shaking. It's... It's... It's beautiful in a way that, that uh, left me trembling. Uh, it's clearly based on uh, Japanese and Chinese scroll work, and so it feels like we're seeing the past unraveling into a way that, that blends perfectly with modern animation. And uh, I'm going to let Matt, Dan and Josh talk about this as well, because this is something they like too. It doesn't feel completely removed from the regular looks, but it makes Juan's story feel even more like a fairy tale than yeah. it already does, which is, is just stunning. For me, as as a fan, I just love the way it expanded on the fiction and yeah. the mythology in a way that totally makes sense. I mean, it absolutely makes sense that the Avatar is half human and half spirit. Yeah. And, and it makes their title make sense as well. Just Avatar it m- means uh, a, a being that's being controlled by another. Um, so to have uh, every Avatar possessed by the, the light spirit, the spirit of order... Um, fits so wonderfully into what's been established already. Um, having the lion turtles uh, yes. be a major part of human beings' development and mm. uh, evolution improves <laughs> the original series because it. A lot, one of the major complaints about the finale of uh, book three is the lion turtle kind of comes out of nowhere and uh, introduces this plot element that helps Aang defeat Fire Lord Ozai. But <laughs> Beginnings kind of makes that more... Um, Solid. Uh, well, so it makes it easier. Machina more of a something that was there all it, along. Yeah, yeah. It makes it easier to swallow as a plot point because, um, now the lion turtles are an important part of this world's fiction and mythology and history. Um, retroactively, yes, but it's still, I, I think I go back to that finale now and it has more impact, uh, than it ever did because of these episodes. Um, and, and and also because it reminded me so much of Princess Mononoke, and Princess uh. Mononoke is one of my favourite films of all time. Um, See, some people are now asking me if I could, you could maybe do some Miyazaki episodes of uh, Gonzo. Are you at all interested in them, uh, Josh? Uh, uh, yes. Do <laughs> <laughs> um, I join in on that? Yeah, you could probably get this entire group of people <laughs> involved in that as well. One was this lovely combination of um, Disney's Aladdin yep. and Akka <laughs> from uh, uh, Princess Mononoke. Like they com- they took those two characters and combined them together. Ashitaka in Princess Mononoke is kind of a Mary Sue in a lot of ways. So having those Aladdin qualities on top of that mm. uh, made one a more interesting and dynamic character one thing i i really took to about this um this pair of episodes was the the mythological feel of it actually the the fact that although uh, it was all presented as sort of this you know this is factual and and this is where the history of the avatar comes from Be- i think possibly because of the way it was painted um, because it had that sort of slightly mythical feel about the, the way that it looked, 
you could also read it as this is an interpretation mm. of how the Avatar came to be. Yeah. And one really reminded me of Prometheus, this idea that he stole fire for the people um, and then went off and did something um, that ended up releasing uh, chaos into the world. It's sort of this, this beautiful combination of the Prometheus myth and Pandora's box. Yeah. To expand on what's it's I love the fact that it's very it's like a tale that's been lost in history. Like no nobody seems to know about the world before the Fire Nation um invaded. Mm. It's as if that was a lot of people's starting point for history records, whereas these pivotal things like if people knew what life was like back then it would completely change their thought processes on certain things. But that does make sense that the Fire Nation would try to eliminate yeah. any historical records that contradicted them being the supreme power. Mm. Especially with the Great Library no longer being accessible. Indeed. It was great to see Wan Shi Tong, by the way. Mm. Oh, and uh, a certain professor's cameo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Grim. yeah. Every time that happens, Lyra goes, Ugh. Quick question. How does a radio work? <laughs> There's a little man inside. Apparently I have been fed some misinformation about the tiny men in little boxes. <laughs> and then the fox hangs its head in shame in the background. That was just brilliantly He asked for information and the fox brought him a Pratchett collection. I've already said that uh, Rava and Vatu reminded me of the uh, the way that the spirits are portrayed in The Legend of Zelda. But again, it, it feels very much in, engaged in Japanese mythology. And they laid down very firmly the idea that um, uh, light cannot exist without a little darkness and, and vice versa. And it's almost... I, I almost objected to the idea of um, chaos being locked up. And, and held in check by light and the, the the idea of, well, if they're going to be held in balance, surely chaos should be allowed freedom, but um, by its very definition giving chaos freedom gives it uh, precedence over control. Also, that, that bear in mind... Leave the world entirely at war all the time. Balance does not mean equal. Um, it, it, there's very much a sense of um, everything uh, being in flux. There are very few major spirits in this universe that don't come in pairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, if you look at the way, um, and their names are going to escape me now, aren't they? Uh, the the water-bending fish spirits in um, uh, Legend of Aang, Tui and La? Yeah. Yeah, um, they are representative of this idea of uh, everything being in flux and things wax and wane. It's not that, that everything is evenly balanced all the time. It's that it swings in favour of one and then in favour of the other. Mm. Um, and, you know, the idea that the if you if you think you've wiped out darkness, the seed of darkness will grow in the heart of light. And if you think you've crushed light the the seed of it will actually grow in the heart of darkness and i i am i am i allowed to talk about my speculation on where they might go with the next one coming up next okay <laughs> i will hold that back then before we leave one behind anything else on the one double episode 
His story completely captures the feeling of the Aang series, and I really yeah. do think the difference is that he is a he is completely a protagonist that you can empathize with. I mean, he's not the same he's not the same character as Aang. He's definitely he's much more the trickster type, but he you can completely understand his journey, the decisions he makes. You're kind of on board. You're experiencing the world along with him, and I'm hoping that Korra gets brought up to that same point of like audience empathy starting yeah. next season. So I think she's getting there, but isn't quite there yet. And also another interesting thing that um, my wife noticed is that so the lion turtle taught Aang how to remove bending. Mm-hmm. Clearly the lion turtles can also grant it to someone who doesn't have it. Is yeah. that something the Avatar could learn to do? And also oh, where did learn to do it? Because the uh, lion turtles were literally bestowed and took away elements as and when they chose. So yeah. logically spirit bending has can go both ways, but and if Korra can give people back their bending after they've been, had it removed from them by, uh, or even did, like it locked off by uh, Amon, it stands to reason it's possible she could unlock it in that it may actually be dormant in everyone. Uh, another <gasps> thing, just air bending. <laughs> oh, oh my god, that's god, how yeah, you bring them cool. back. That would be great, actually. Yeah. Resurrect that entire culture. <laughs> Because uh, God knows Tenzin is uh, stressed out about having to hold it all on his shoulders. <laughs> Have you seen what I did with the first three? I'd like lightning patties, please. That what? doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Just to um, expand on the lion turtles giving uh, uh, bending to people, one thing I did like is that even though they gave them the power of the element, they weren't really benders. They just kind of chucked fire. Mm. It wasn't Mm. until one had a lesson with a dragon. Yeah. And, and, oh, I almost burst into tears (laughs) when, uh, when one was doing the dragon dance because it just, the memories flooded back. Mm. Um, and the fact they, they didn't dwell on that moment. They didn't go, and Uh, here, firebending was born. They just, (laughs) they just put it, they just put it there. And, you know, as fans, we immediately, uh, you know, figured that out. They didn't have to (laughs) force that down our throat. Um, it was really clever economical storytelling there. Um, yeah. Um, and, and it makes sense that 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 power wasn't given to them by the dragons or the, the, uh, badger moles or the, uh, air, uh, the, the, the sky bison. It was just, the the techniques the ways of using it in more effective ways were passed on yes. by the the original sources can i also mention the side <laughs> sorry i just get yes, keep... sure you can mention anything um the and side you have. <laughs> the the side characters in one story were also uh, really I, I... the i i spirit was fantastic <laughs> and, I, I... <laughs> To base to base a spirit on something as ugly as the I.I. is <laughs> inspired. Um, I, I mean, he doesn't look ugly in uh, this cartoon. He's a fantastically designed character. But um, Google I.I. Anyone yeah. who's listening to this podcast, you are you will see one of the most hideous creatures ever to uh, grace our planet. Uh, that's a y e a y e. It looks like a koala on crack. <laughs> <laughs> or some sort of lemur bat thing. It is what a member. It? It, it is a member of the lemur family. Kill it with fire. 
it's, uh, it's, they tried. So I thought it looked like someone had stretched Momo. Yeah, <laughs> this creature should I'm, be. Holy <laughs> shit! I, I love. Oh, sorry. Go on, Dwayne. No, I just looked at the picture. Hey, I, I, I love the fact that. At the beginning of the episode, when they show one's friend twisted, looking like a tree, it's giving this amazing weight, as if oh, he's been some through some real shit. And when it turns out, it's just spirits sometimes can inhabit humans, and that's just the sort of side effect. But it's okay; they look better now. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't don't know if you noticed, but they really just seem to have fun with a lot of the spirit designs. I mean, one of them is literally a giant carrot. With arms yeah. and legs. Uh, there was one that looked exactly like uh, well, the, what's on the back of Bulbasaur that was playing Pai Shell. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the pairing of the Wan shows at beginnings, they just flew by. I could have watched hours of that. And the, a lot of people have said I could watch a whole series of that easily. It's, it, it's the, 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 the joyous simplicity of that. And the the harmony that it's pitching, the idea of uh, that, that was one of the most Mononoke moments. The idea that he was in the middle trying to prevent two sides from killing each other. And he almost succeeded. Yeah. The but ending. He felt, yeah. Having him just have grown old and he's in the middle of a battlefield and he still hasn't accomplished what he set out to accomplish... It's so bittersweet. We know what's going to happen in the future. We know there will be more avatars who will carry on that work. Mm. But one, until, um, I've forgotten the spirit's name. Um, Fatu? No, the other spirit. The, the oh, other, Rava. Rava. Until Rava tells him, I will uh, be, uh, be with you in all your lifetimes and we will never give up. He doesn't know in that moment that, um, he's started a legacy that will outlive him for generations. He doesn't know that. So there's a bittersweet kind of um, feeling to that moment because, uh, yeah, we know that good things will come of this moment, but he doesn't, and uh, it's really sad. Question. Uh, was the Sky Bison Island, which apparently Ang found when he was on his journeys, um, hence the proliferation of Sky Bison, uh, was that... A- hinted at as being actually a lion turtle itself? I don't know. It would make sense that it found Korra. Or Korra was drawn to it Mm. when adrift. Mm. A lot of people uh, were uh, incensed at her um, uh, amnesia, which is a very sort of uh, Days of Our Lives style plot twist. But But a dark spirit essentially devoured her. Yeah. I don't think the amnesia was necessary, no. but like I think they could have done the whole thing of her washing up and then being healed on this island, and then during that healing, seeing having this vision and seeing these, seeing this past thing. But uh, it doesn't bother me. But it does. It did feel a little like it didn't need to be there. It was kind of a crowbar to get her to the thing to happen as quick as possible. Yeah, uh, it could possibly have been done a little smoother, but ultimately, it doesn't really play in crucially to the episode. It's a way of telling us this story in a way that's endemic to the actual series, rather than just going, thousands of years ago. That was kind of cool seeing the healer on that island, the, the firebender, kind yeah. of being like, sort of spirit healer, just like sort of scanning her body. 
like using fire. That was something that we hadn't seen before that I can remember. Josh, who do you think she was? I had a theory that she might be a Zula. Zula, yeah. I am no longer confident in that theory for several <laughs> reasons. Well, first of all, her fire's not blue, so yeah. that, that's immediately she's not a Zula. But also they kind of don't make a big deal out of her any further than those episodes. So, and Grace um, Lyle voiced uh, the giant spider thing in the uh, tail end. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. I I just I kind of I love the idea of Azula kind of coming back into the yeah. series somehow. Um, you never know. You never know. Uh, um, sure, Grey would be happy to reprise the role. It's a great role for her. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's just finish off with the finish. It makes the most sense. Um, the scene when they were lost in the mist, searching for Janora, I, I found actually really uh, kind of emotional. Firstly, because it uh, tapped into who Tenzin was. She's Tenzin. Um, but the thing that perturbed Lyra when they went away was how come the mist went back and everyone was left there? She felt that it was right that they should lead all of these uh, characters out of the mist and, and to some sort of place where they could be at peace. Um, there were overtones, in fact, of his dark materials in there to that end. But there seemed to be... Uh, a harmony about that, that these people were dealing with their own issues and that disturbing that and, and pushing them out uh, would be uh, messing with the natural order. Because because you got, only um, Tenzin's eldest was put there, whereas all the others were, they naturally hmm. found their way to that place. So it would be sort of meddling in things that they don't know. Yeah, what could happen well, with? And also, it is a prison. I mean, Zhao was there. There's no reason to think that all these other people that are there deserved it. Yeah, they could be leaving Hitler out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, if the Fire Lord's anywhere, he's in there. That's Ozai, at least. Before we round up, I have two essay pieces for you on Korra by members of the Gonzo community. I Am Not the Last Airbender by Andy Rodriguez One of The Legend of Korra's biggest criticisms was its strong ties to its predecessor, Avatar and the Last Airbender, known as The Legend of Aang outside of the United States. Over the course of Legend of Korra, we've seen countless references and tie-ins to the Legend of Aang, oftentimes with flashbacks to our previous heroes becoming the most beloved parts of the tales of the new ones. Even major plot points in the Legend of Korra relied on the actions of Aang, Sokka, Toph, and Katara. Yakon's vengeance against the Avatar and the resulting turn on him by Tarlock and Amon wouldn't have been possible if not for the actions of Sokka, Toph, and Aang, and it led to many people wondering how reliant The Legend of Korra would be on having to use the old fan favorites. Lucky for us as fans, Mike, Brian, and their old team of writers brought some absolutely crazy courage to the table this time around. In Book 2, Spirits... 
Korra lost her connection to the previous avatars. Not just in some pansy little, oh, you might not be able to access the spiritual side. No, this was straight up Vatu, embodiment of darkness, lord of evil stuff, making a dark avatar and severing the avatar's connections with each other. We heartbreakingly watched the dark avatar destroy Rava and the spiritual connections with the avatars. And at the end of this, Korra doesn't get it back. This isn't just some move by the writers to raise tension for later books, with Korra being left clueless as to what might happen without the advice of previous avatars. This is a statement by the writers saying, No more. No more will this be a tribute to the previous team avatar. No more will we rely on these old ties. Korra as a character and show must trudge their own path to the future now. The best representation of this change wasn't the severing of the avatars or Korra's decision to leave the spirit to leave the spirit world portals open though. Rather, it was Tenzin's encounter with his father in the fog of lost souls. For those who can't remember, Tenzin, Kaya, and Bumi found themselves looking for Junora in the spirit world, eventually arriving to the fog of lost souls, which is a spirit that in is itself the fog that causes people in it to inhabit their darkest memories. Tenzin confronts his father and admits that he will never be like Aang, not the great spiritual leader he wishes to be. When Aang tells Tenzin that he is not the man he was, that he holds himself to a false perception of who he is, and Tenzin accepts that, this is in and of itself what the Legend of Korra has been the entire time. It's been a show telling itself that it wants to be the Legend of Aang. The Legend of Korra has continuously struggled in the shadow of the Legend of Aang. Between its attempts to establish new characters and stories without changing the formula too much has resulted in a universe where nothing of any true significance can happen with characters wielding such power as the Avatar. Finally, though, the change has come. No longer will Korra be dragged by the chains of the past in order to continue feeling relevant to its universe. The Legend of Korra will now have to grow on its own. Book 3, Change, will have many things to live up to. Not in the expectation of living up to the Legend of Aang, though, but living up to the promise of the end of Book 2, Spirit. This is not the Legend of Aang anymore. This is the story of Tenzin, Mako, Asami, Bolin, of Jinora. This is the Legend of Korra. The Legend of Korra, Book 2 Analysis, by Name Chaibidi. Part 1. Characters The Legend of Korra, Book 2, came with great expectations, and when all was said and done, they definitely delivered it. But the way they delivered the package was a lackluster job, getting the wrapping paper a little dirty and even tearing up the lace ribbon. What about Book 2 of Korra left me just a little underwhelmed? Honestly, it was probably the characters. The animation was stunning, enough said. The writing was top-notch, delivering a plot that really brought it home and gave a threat more daunting than Amon and even Ozai. But the characters has always been the best part of the Avatar shows, and the representation of Korra's cast was a mix of highs and lows. Let's start with Mako. He was a constant in this season, probably due to the fact that Mike and Brian wanted to show the world that he wasn't such a bad guy after all. But there's not much you can do with Mako if he isn't getting into trouble with the ladies. 
That said, the drama between Asami and Mako had me hooked during the second half of the season, and I was ultimately very happy with how his side of the season turned out. Bolin left me very disappointed, though. It wasn't that the writers were at a fault, or that they took his character and grew him in a malformed way. This is how Bolin has been from the start. He seems to have always drifted from girl to girl, letting the spotlight get to him, and generally not being the brightest cabbage in the company. But finding out about this made me not want him on the screen. And although he did have his moments, nothing about his faults were really resolved in any way, something that carries over into the rest of the cast. Some words on the villains. Unilock never had a concrete goal. He wanted to be evil for the sake of evil, and that's never been Avatar's way of doing things. I actually preferred my feelings of unsureness at the beginning of the season around him, questioning whether he was bad or good. That gray line would have been much more appreciated if it lasted all the time, or even just longer. Varric ended up being my favorite character this season. Despite his eventual turn, I still loved every second he was on screen. I know there's a lot of love for Amon and Azula, but Varric's probably my favorite villain to date. The fuzzy lines he brings, as well as the fun he has, makes him one of the show's best. Now for the two main characters, and the point of this essay. Tenzin was probably the best character of season two, because he was the only one that grew. We learned about the tension between his siblings, the expectations from his father, and the conflict that Tenzin had within himself. Then, when it really mattered, Tenzin was able to pull through it all and find himself in order to save his family. This kind of character growth is what Avatar is all about, and it was great to watch. It's also what Korra, the titular character, didn't have at all. She was a jerk all season, lashing out at Tenzin, her father, and her friends. Sure, she had pretty good reasons, but the Avatar's duty is to find a way to look past all that and secure balance. Some would argue that's not in her character, but she was supposed to have learned that in Book 1. Again, some would argue that the only thing she learned from Book 1 is that if she tries really hard, she can still win, no matter what. But that's not a good thing. She still doesn't learn anything by the end of the second season. She's still feisty, she's still headstrong, and she's still arrogant. This lack of growth after all Korra has been through is just disappointing to me as a member of the audience. That's why, ultimately, Book 2 left me a little uncomfortable and unsatisfied. Because while there were plenty of character moments, there wasn't exactly a lot of character growth. And that's what every season before this has been about. The Legend of Korra, Book 2 Analysis by Name Chivity, Part 2, Avatar Parallels. Idea credit to Iggy Zielinski. My friend Iggy and I were having a conversation about Book 2 a while ago, and he had something really interesting to say that I wanted to share with you. All the avatars parallel and connect with one another. Aang parallels Avatar Yang Chen, the previous airbending avatar before him. Both were very strict about world order, threatening anyone who would cross the line that they decided on. Doesn't sound like Aang, right? After all, anyone that crossed Yang Chen would be killed. But there is something that Aang did whenever the line was crossed. He took away their bending. Kor parallels the water-bending avatar before her. I believe his name is Avatar Korin. Anyway, both are headstrong avatars that pick fights and take names. It would be very interesting if a certain face-dealer would come knocking at Mako's door next season, just to finish the parallel. Lastly, Roku parallels Wan in that they don't risk the balance of the world for their own people. Both were tested by their best friends to remain loyal to their homeland and people, and both decided against it, remaining loyal to the world in its entirety. Another thing my friend realized is that the Avatar and his or her personality depends a lot on the last Avatar, and even the last Avatar's regrets. Yang Chen lived a very strict life, never married, and didn't have many friends. Maybe that's why Corin was such a rowdy, fun-loving person. Maybe that's why he tried to take a wife. Yang Chen regretted not living that. But Corin lived irresponsibly, and the world was in chaos because of it. 
So when Kiyoshi filled the role of Avatar, she policed the world and built many groups to police it after she was gone. But she too never settled down. She may have regretted not having a family either. Roku did just that. He had a wife, he had children, and he had friends. But because of his friendship with the Fire Lord, he let him live when he probably should have been out of the picture. Roku regretted not ending the possibility of war when he had the chance, which is why Aang was tasked with this almost the moment he found out he was the Avatar. Now here's where the theory gets interesting. Aang was able to police the world well enough with the Lion Turtle's soul-bending ability. He also had enough heart and compassion to love and raise an ultimately happy family. Sakura can act irresponsibly because there isn't any real chaos left over from Aang, but she also doesn't have his ghost haunting her about his everlasting regrets. It's also interesting that the cycle of behavior ends here, because it's also where the cycle of avatars has ceased. At least for now. Part 3. The New World Order So hopefully everyone here has watched Book 2 in its entirety. If so, the cat's out of the bag. Spirits roam the earth. What do I think of this? And where do I think the show's going from here? If Mike and Brian did this just because, then I hate the idea of it. I think it's sloppy, I think it's unplanned, and I think Korra as a character was very dumb to make this decision. After all, the dead now literally walk the earth. Iroh might as well be a regular character again. But this also opens up a whole horde of baddies that Korra can't possibly hope to defend. I don't know if she forgot, but a lot of spirits hate humans. Korra's going to steal everyone's faces. The end times are here. But I trust Mike and Brian. I'm sure they know what they're doing. I also happen to know that books 2, 3, and 4 were all called for at the same time. This means that Mike and Brian had plenty of time to outline a three-season story arc, much like Aang series was. This can allow us to view the series as three books for Aang, one in-betweener book between shows, which is why Korra Book 1 was called Air, and three books for Korra. My theory for the New World Order is that book 2 was about Korra making the decision to let the spirits go. Book 3 will be about change and the complications that will bring. As I've mentioned, it would be interesting if Mako had his face stolen by Ko, triggering immediate anger and remorse in Korra about her decision. She'll want to put things back the way they were, but she won't be able to. Book 4 will then be the epic solution to the problem she caused, and the last episode will be called Avatar Korra, as she'll have finally made the right decisions, and finally be considered a true Avatar. I know a year or two from now these speculations could look pretty stupid, but this is where I think the story is going if the betterment of the story and characters is in mind. As I've said for many other things aside this, this holds a lot of potential. But if it can't deliver on that potential, or it messes up the packaging job, then I'll be pretty disappointed. One big overarching question with a lot of expansive answers, what could the finale signify for the ongoing series? By which I mean the flaying off of the various past lifetimes, the dark avatar, the seed of dark possibly within Korra, and uh, what that means for the avatar state, her past incarnations, links to the previous series. What? what? Ideas? I have mixed feelings about uh, Korra losing contact with the past lives uh, and it's mainly for selfish reasons mm-hmm. um, I just really 
love the concept of having access to all this wisdom and all this past knowledge through people who have uh, gone through similar trials Hmm. Um, that said uh, in a storytelling capacity I think it takes this universe in an interesting direction and it challenges uh, the writers because now they can't fall back on that as a crutch they yep. can't. They can't just have Cora say, "Oh, Ang, how would you handle this?" Or uh, Roku, uh, give us a hand. They can't do that anymore. They have to have Cora figure her own way out of these situations, yeah. which is exciting. Um, and uh, and I think it would benefit Cora as a character because um, go keep going. If you keep going back to Ang, you just keep reminding the audience how awesome Ang was. It's time that it's about time we think Cora's really awesome on her own. She doesn't need these other guys. Yeah. Um, having the spirit world connected with the real world is a brilliant choice um, because it changes the chessboard completely. Um, it means anything can happen now. Um, uh, we the potential for different antagonists. We've already talked about Ko. Um, I would like Ko to appear, but maybe a more interesting spirit-based uh, antagonist and something like that. I'm really excited. I think uh, um, Book Three has a lot of potential to do something really different with this universe. Sharon, you had something specific to say about this one. I do, and I actually think that what Josh has said there about the not having the old uh, avatars to fall back on actually fits in quite well with my um, idea. Uh, I don't know how anyone else feels about this, but like I said about the idea of the the seed of light growing within darkness, which obviously they explored with um, uh, Korra being able to... Uh, retrieve rather from within um, what were they calling him? Unavatu. I believe um, that's the Yeah. Um, basically, if that's happened and now uh, Vatu's corporeal form has been dissipated, where does that mean Vatu is now? Because we know he can't be destroyed. The logical place for him to be is in the heart of Korra and for darkness to start to develop within her. Now, if she's been cut off from all of the previous avatars, that gives you the perfect avenue for that to happen. That Basically, she has now lost the sense of um, uh, forebears and, and this line of history that she was connected to, and that she is now... A child um, of light and darkness? Well, yes. Yes, that too. But basically, she's been put in this position now where she is it all the power of the avatar is now contained within her and without that sense of being the latest in a long line of them it you can see how that power would go to her head basically and that that would become her basically her next antagonist could potentially be her own sense of self-importance or specifically, it could be in uh, her idealistic attempts to control the world. Because even though she doesn't have the literal connection to her legacy, she does have everybody else's expectations based upon mm. her forebears. We've already seen Ang try and try to, uh, especially 
very well handled in The Promise, which I recommend all people track down in comic form. Uh, it's also on YouTube. Um, Ang wrestles repeatedly with Shades of Grey scenarios because when there's no straightforward situation of right and wrong, he has to go with his gut. And Ang wasn't very good at going with his gut. Cora is too good at going with her gut, and it often leads her into the wrong situation. So and she proved with the sticking the judge's head in a polar bear dog's mouth, mm. she tends to resort to brute force ways of dealing with things. But she has had a Thor-like level of um, of a character arc. She's gone from being cocky and overly zealous to she is sad and she is more slight at the end of this season. She is less sure of herself. Uh, I believe she's actually genuinely maturing and that by the time we see her again, especially with her cutting off the whole Makora, I hate it when people combine two names. It's loathsome. The idea of her cutting herself off from Marco, possibly that might might mean she cuts herself off from uh, love of all kinds um, in terms of romantic love, that she will start to become a more somber character. Oh, that's a good point, actually. Um, if you look at the the Avatar's um, family life, Aang had a family. Roku had a family. As far as I can tell, Kyoshi did not. Mm. Kyoshi is actually a really good example of what Korra could end up becoming very similar mm. to. If you remember, yeah. Kyoshi had very much a sense of, uh, I had to do what I had to do, her duty. And some of those uh, decisions that she made were unpleasant for a lot of people. And uh, there's kind of a, you know, the, the amount of responsibility heaped on her that, that Cora in C- Series 3 could be... Um, Headed that way. Yeah. But you're right about her maturing, even her uh, the way she's drawn. I, I'm not entirely certain whether it's just that her hair falls down or, or what the reason is for it, but she looks so much more grown up. She looks really awesome with her hair down, actually. Like, really badass. Yeah. It's funny, like, my uh, like my wife's immediate impressions upon finishing the series was very much, like, dismayed and worried and fearful for the world with it, with Korra's decision to unite the spirit world and the physical one. Mm. Partially because, like, we've seen how dangerous the spirit world can become. And how defenseless the humans are. From the spirits. Yeah, around, around negative emotions, and we have seen how much negativity there is in, in this world that like, could be a recipe for a disaster, but also because we have seen Korra making almost exclusively poor decisions th- throughout the entire mm. her entire series, it feels like. She has kind of inherited Zuko's informal bad decision <laughs> lord title. So, <laughs> having, and she, so she's just known for making kind of brass decisions that might have some... Un- fortunate consequences and even though i feel like this is probably the same decision ang would have made in the same scenario i could totally i could kind of understand her feeling of like dread <laughs> like a sudden brash decision on cora's part for what might happen but i don't know like I, i'm kind of glad that like for the same reasons you guys have mentioned though because of how interesting this could be like how many interesting things this could mean for the next season and what this could mean for the world and how it resets the chessboard. Like you said, I found myself, um, 
in watching these last couple episodes, feeling a bit disappointed that they had chosen to make these seasons so relatively self-contained as stories because like so many things happen in these last two episodes that could easily be turned into interesting series long conflicts. Like just, just Rava being separated from Korra and stripping her of her avatar power and her whole source of identity is a huge thing that like having like her having to find strength of her own and trying to sit like, protect and save the world on her own without Rava, without the Avatar powers to lean on. Even just the concept of a dark Avatar to have to contend with. Like, that that's, those are some big ideas loaded with potential in it. But it's all just wrapped up and concluded so quickly. And, like, there aren't any right or wrong options when making stories like that, when making these stories, and I fully believe that they have some big, great ideas in store for season three and season four. But, uh, it does feel a little like a, a bit of a shame to end those threads so quickly, especially when they've teased Korra losing her like immense avatar powers twice now. Yeah. And it seems like such a great idea to make her character really sympathetic and force her to grow on her own terms. Well, like by stripping the ability to force her way through everything, it seems like such a great idea for making her, forcing her to grow as a character that, uh, it feels like a bit of a missed opportunity, but I do kind of. I do still have faith in these guys that they've got a plan for it. I was actually really worried for her when I was uh, watching it. I thought that Korra might actually die this time. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought they might go. You know what? We're going to have the balls to kill our lead character, and then we're going to start again with a new avatar just a few years from now, and the avatar will be a small child. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm the least bit disappointed that they didn't do that. For the love of God, I'm I'm very glad they didn't. But something had to be sacrificed to get to the end here, to leave Korra where she is and for the world to really change like that. Somebody had actually, I, it, it wasn't really a spoiler spoiler, but um, somebody had said on my Twitter feed that the, they the cried season... Buckets. Uh, no, 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 not quite. But they, they said it ended with a moment of great sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and I... Uh, at one point, and I think in all in all fairness, in retrospect, this would have been way too dark, and I don't think they would have taken it down that route. But I thought Janora was going to die. Yeah, I, I thought that. she was she was basically going to sacrifice herself to become the seed of light that was going to become the new Rava. Or that I thought it's possible that if uh, Korra dies, Janora could become the new Avatar. Yeah. There was definitely I, I, I did say something along the lines of Janora is the key. If you mm. remember, um, yeah. then I realized in one quick moment that everything was going to be fine and everyone was going to be fine and that it really would amount to nothing. When um, Janora appeared between the Jaeger and the uh, Kaiju and her mum shouted out, honey, be careful in that kind of, oh, it's OK, folks, everybody's going to be fine kind of way. Uh, just in terms of, of sucking all drama away and just letting it drain away, because it's like... It almost seemed like, it's okay, folks, we know this is all silly. And everyone's really okay. So I obviously it wouldn't have bothered most other people, but for, for me, it, it doesn't make, it didn't make me go, ugh. But it did make me go, mm, it's, uh, okay, well, well, I guess everything's going to be fine then. And everything was, quote-unquote, fine. Uh, but that's the other thing. Does anybody want to place a bet that this connection to the past avatars might come back again? Because yeah. I have a strong feeling it will. 
Um, if there's one thing that this audience loves, it's Chorus eyes suddenly going white at the absolute darkest of times, and then that theme kicking in, and and if everyone's gone, there's no Avatar state, because she's not calling upon the past Avatars, and we know the Avatar state won't go. That's one thing that can't go. It's a motif of the series. I expect it will be hard earned, like a hard fought to get it back. I hope so. And I hope that, yeah, and I hope it's a very big element maybe of the next season, or at least a, or at least a very difficult struggle in the next season that she has to, and maybe that could be something that continues into the, even to the fourth one. Maybe she's just without it for a while. Ongoing themes as opposed to just having it all tied up in a neat ribbon. Yeah, having something that's ongoing would be nice. Kai? I was just going to say, I was going to say the same thing. If they were going to bring it back, I just hope it's a nice little way to round off the end of the fourth season. Yeah. I wouldn't want it any time before that, to be honest. Talking about all this stuff, just the way each season of Korra seems to wrap up really neatly with a tight bow, um, it, it kind of highlights one of the strongest points of the original series was that that series did long-form storytelling really well. Yeah. Like, you think about how far in advance um, Sozin's Comet was established as a plot point. <laughs> All the way back in the early episodes of Book 1. Yeah. And that didn't pay off until all the way until the end of Book 3. But not just Sozin's Comet, um, Day of Black Sun. That that uh, plot point was introduced in the middle of book two and then didn't pay off until the middle of book three. Um, and so far, Cora hasn't done anything like that. Having It hasn't said um, something's going to happen, but it won't happen yet. Yeah. Setting things in motion well in advance of when they're going to occur. Um, I think that's why um, the original series had that feeling of... Uh, constant progression between each book is because there was always something that hadn't happened yet that you knew was going to happen but it hadn't happened yet Cora, it feels like everything that's mentioned in a season happens that season and in some Often ways within the same episode yeah. <laughs> and in yeah. some ways it well aids... thank god the world didn't end in 10,000 years of darkness <laughs> the yeah. entire world went purple for about 40 minutes yeah <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, they bought Bois to Cora. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's it, it's kind of disappointing, but in in a we way, can't it's end on a shitty note like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's. I mean, I, I think they have publicly expressed that they the plan is to make these four books much more self-contained stories, and that might just be them being careful knowing like just they may have their worries that this could get like the series act at any point and they do not want to leave something just hanging so so i understand that that's the reality they're having to work with but and and it is disappointing a little bit because that was such a great aspect of the ang series but i do love that they are at least working to make it so that each book changes a lot about the and world sets up a lot of changes that, that can significantly impact the next one. Like the, there are major changes dropped in the last five minutes of this episode. Yeah, it's, it is churlish for me to say that it's tied up neatly with a bow. It explodes and spirits fly out. 
Yeah, like, like the, the first season was tied up a little bit more neatly for for certain and for good reason, I guess. But it's where even though I do think there are lots of things they could drag out and flesh out into a much longer thing if they wanted to do it that way. I do at least like that they are. Yeah, I do like it. They're at least trying to keep kind of momentum going between seasons and having uh, consequences of decisions playing out a little bit longer term. Yeah. A lot of people complained about the, uh, the, the big sort of Godzilla style um, bust up at the end. I, I found it totally inoffensive and the, the idea of um, uh, Korra, you know, bl- finding the light within herself and blasting through space like Neo uh, in The Matrix and then crashing. The, the, just that sort of titanic struggle there. It's symbolic. It wasn't necessarily about what went on and they kept it mercifully short. That one, had it been in Dragon Ball Z, would have gone on for episodes. <laughs> would it not? The section could have been strengthened a little bit, I think, but I, I didn't have a problem with the idea of it. It was a pretty cool finish. Although I found it was even more like uh, effective was were the rest of her friends and team members trying to protect her while yeah. vulnerable. Like yeah. that, I think was a that was a great idea. That scenario could have been strengthened by an ideological difference if Cora had still been arguing with Unalak or at least with Vatu. If she had tried yeah. to rationalize with Vatu, look, what what are you doing here? Just because you've been uh, ca- captive for thousands of years doesn't necessarily mean that destroying everything will in any way solve all your problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, just well. Some, something that wasn't just you will die. <laughs> Well, she needed to talk to Unalok, really, because Vatu is the darkest shade of black there is. Like he is uncompromising in his uh, in his view and uh, the way he wants to turn the world. Unalok is the variable here, yeah, yeah. but they didn't exploit that, so it was kind of let's just let's not use the term exploit like it's a good thing. <laughs> We're not Bobby Kotick. Sorry, explore. They, they didn't explore that option. Indeed, um, yeah. It just, Unlock just became Vatu, basically. They just became the same person. And yeah. that's not as exciting as somebody being possessed by something they didn't truly understand. And yeah. once they are, they are so sorry that they ever unleashed that force yeah. upon the world. Like How much more interesting is internal conflict than everything must die. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's not entirely clear what Vatu gets out of this particular arrangement, because although, obviously, Unalok is key to getting him out of the tree in the first place, Mm. he doesn't seem to need corporeal form to... um, To fly uh, around like a big black laughing kite. Exactly, and and have an impact, especially if the fact that it's the harmonic convergence means that the spirit world and the physical world are now connected anyway. I think it's more of a thing of the whole battle between him and Rava having that um, human element maybe perceived to him was a way of gaining extra power having my power channeled through it, being of the other world will help me give a more influence over it when it comes time for me to take over. Well, that would certainly have made sense. His whole thing is he wants... 
he's all about spirits. That's the thing. He wants spirits to take over both the spirit and the human world, but he wants spirits to be in line with his thinking. He can have direct... He doesn't have to convince spirits to do anything. He has direct influence over them. It was a combination of spirit and human that defeated him last time. So, yeah. Literally yeah. stopped him from coming back because whereas all the other for the millennia and ages that um, those two have been fighting it took a human's influence for him to be imprisoned all this time rather than simply dissipated and coming back well if we take this scenario to be the analogue of Koizilla uh, yeah yeah. then we're yeah. just about to enter the Earth Kingdom which is when Avatar became really really good so now that they've finally if you remember they weren't actually greenlit for more until was that part way through Spirits yeah I believe so yeah this was going to be another one of those let's just finish this one off uh, scenarios um, I, I've got great great hope for the future it is not Same. diminished and also we were mentioning about uh Judy and uh, all that other stuff. It would be interesting to see what the Earth Kingdom is like now um, oh, yeah. that uh, the uh, government has had a significant reshuffle. Um, I-, I want to see who the Earth King is and to see whether he's not an incompetent man child with a bear. Man child with a bear. <laughs> um, the queen. It's be weird. All right, it's going to be a queen, yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I think it probably is going to be a queen. Yeah. Uh, so that will be interesting. As will Legend of Korra. Action figures, please. Okay, um, I think that'll do. We will see you folks in one year's time. <laughs> Maybe less, depending on how quick they can get this one out. Uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely looking forward to it. Uh, thank you very, very much to my own personal Gonzo team avatar uh, Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits always a pleasure Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince whenever you want to talk about avatar I will definitely be there <laughs> <laughs> thank you uh, Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home thank you very much for having me Jerome McIntosh of Game Burst no worries and Dwayne Griffiths of Gonzo Planet thank you thank you Next week, an in-depth look at the Cartographer's Handbook. And uh, what shall we end on? Yip, yip. Yip, yip. <laughs>